This episode of Downstream was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navarro Media. We want to bring you even more of the kind of podcasts, videos and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. But we need your help to do it. So please consider pledging an hour's wage a month or whatever you can afford to help us build people powered media for the future. Just go to navara.media slash support to set up a donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Britain is obsessed with class, possibly more than any other country in the world. And the left, naturally, is also obsessed with class. It's central to our politics. But I've had a suspicion for quite a while that we don't quite get it right when it comes to understanding class in the 21st century. Something's missing in our analysis. And a book has been published which has crystallized much of my own thinking. It said things I wanted to say. It is called A Nation of Shopkeepers, The Unstoppable Rise of the Petty Bourgeoisie. Its author is Dan Evans, and Dan is today's guest on Downstream. Dan Evans, welcome. Thank you for having me, mate. We are talking today about your brilliant book, A Nation of Shopkeepers, The Unstoppable Rise of the Petty Bourgeoisie. It sounds quite pointy-headed. <laughs> it is a little bit, but I think the, the political takeaways from it are anything but. Before we start with the book and its contents, you're from a place called Porthcawl in South Wales. At the top of the book, you talk about Porthcawl, you embed the analysis in, in your upbringing fundamentally. What is Porthcawl like? So yeah, Porthcawl is obviously extremely special to me and I forget sometimes that not everyone loves or knows as much about Porthcawl as I do. So it's a small uh, tourist town in between Cardiff and Swansea. In South Wales, it occupies or traditionally occupied a very special place in the sort of imaginary because it was the venue for the South Wales uh, Miners I Stedford. You know, big, one of the biggest caravan parks in Europe, uh, fun fair. Um, but gradually the sort of town got gentrified uh, and it became seen locally as a, as a as I write in the book, it's like a posh or, or aspirational middle-class town. So I grew up thinking I was I was posh, stri- straightforwardly posh. We used to play football against boys from the valleys and they would make fun of our accents because they never a particularly strong Welsh accent, call us posh boys, you know. Um, we had different haircuts, you know, they had crew cuts. I had like long hair back when I had hair. And the rest of Bridgen County tends to vote Labour. Porthcawl is sort of surrounded by former mining villages, but then... And Porthcawl used to be a coal port, but it's mainly known for for tourism. So yeah, everything I sort of have grown up thinking about because um, you hear people say about South Wales, you know, Wales South Wales never votes Conservative. I don't know anyone who votes Tory in Wales. And I remember thinking, well, actually, you know, Porthcawl is a solidly Conservative town. I know loads of people who vote Conservative. Um, so my framework for understanding my myself was always based on Porthcawl, and it was this idea of Porthcawl as a middle class oasis in a in a working class area and obviously that starts to inform how you view yourself and then i go to university and you know people in university would say oh well, he's from south Wales, he's from the valleys and i'd say well no i'm from Porthcawl. actually it's like quite a posh place and they were like well no Porthcawl is like valleys on sea it's you're not you're not posh at all and i was sort of you know racked with an existential crisis you know who who am i uh, and then started to think you know about what is the actual class character Porthcawl because it's not traditional middle class and it's certainly not working class because people there have sort of too much money to be working class and obviously the people there are sort of culturally working class but with 
a lot more money than the sort of people from the working class areas around it. And then I started doing my PhD on on Porthcawl, national identity in Porthcawl. That's how much I love the place. And then I started to think, well, this is the this is the petty bourgeoisie, you know, because the people who are in Porthcawl, I started to think about their, you know, their their jobs. You know, they were sort of they're self employed or they're policemen or they're soldiers and things like that. You know, they own their own house. Sometimes people own more than one house and they were renting them out, and so I've often had very well, quite solidly right-wing or conservative views. Um, and obviously these people aren't like the sort of Tories in like the home counties. You know, they're not people who are like aristocrats or things like that. These are people, you know, got tattoos on their arms, you know, people who pay, pay in cash. But nonetheless, died in the world conservatives. And I started to think, well, actually, Porth Call, and this, this is the really the main basis of modern conservatism. And if I can sort of study and explain Porth Call, then you can explain a lot of what's happened in the UK. It's a sort of microcosm, isn't it, of the sort of, like you said, the petty bourgeois, and, and you make it so evocative. <laughs> well, like, uh, you, you, the way you said, like, they pay cash, you write this in the book, and it's like, and I, I, I would never pay cash, but, like, the petty but my dad loves, my dad loves having a big wadge of, like, 200 quid, because he's a tax driver, right? It's all cash. Yeah, and people don't want to pay tax. People, well, they, people don't like the tax, man. There's all this sort of... Uh, really strong like libertarian feelings like yeah i'm not giving money you know the, the state isn't taking my money and obviously i grew up working in all these small these bars owned by small businessmen and you come into contact with small businessmen and yeah absolutely hate the concept of paying um with card you know cash only don't like paying tax which is very liquid in a way that the salariat you're yeah. paid every month into your bank account it's just a very different thing. yeah and, and, and a to- it was a to- totally different way of viewing the world almost like the fetishization of like graft you know work as much as possible you know like work as much as possible until you you drop people's bodies are given up because they've been on the tools since they were like 16 but you know to give your family um not just a good life but like a nice life that you can also sort of show off so in my phd because my background is really in like bourdieu before i got, got into like marxist class analysis proper and it was all about the sort of cultural signifiers you know the aesthetics people had in porth call you know and at the moment it's things like astroturf lawns you know a lot of a lot of crushed grey velvet, you know, grey, and, and and a lot of the things about housing, are very very different to sort of the aesthetics of the traditional middle classes. You know, I live in Cardiff now, and people have like bohemian wild gardens, you know, like um, hardwood flooring, things like that. That's 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 the house I live in at the moment. Um, wild flowers, yeah, exactly, wild flowers. And, this, and the, yeah. these these guys are saying, "Those are weeds. Get rid of them. Get yeah. the astroturf." Yeah, in. exactly. And 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 there was, a, but people in Porthcawl, you know, very. Um, very focused on appearances, very focused on aspirations of, um, you know, no, I'm going to, I'm going to graft, I'm going to buy another house, I'm going to do the house up, I'm going to rent it out. Um, you know, it's not necessarily um, atavism, but it's like, it, it's this constant striving for status and a lot of status anxiety because people are terrified about sort of falling, falling down into the, into the working class because a lot of people, you know, don't didn't have don't come from much money. That, that's the other thing. Porthcawl is a town built on social mobility. Most of the people I grew up with, no one's parents are from Porthcawl. Everyone's parents are from sort of the rest of South Wales. And it was like people who've done well from the working class parts would aspire to move to Porthcawl. And then obviously the kids get inculcated with that sort of desire for social mobility as well. But I thought, yeah, it's a, it's the more I re- read about the sort of the, the technical understanding of the petty bourgeoisie and their aesthetics and things like that. I was like, well, this isn't a middle-class town. You know, it's definitely not working class. This concept of the petty bourgeoisie explains this phenomena and this life world and subsequently the politics that, that, that grow out of that so well. And then obviously 
one thing leads to another, and and then I wrote the book. But yeah, every every almost everything comes from um, you know my understanding of, of of the world or politics is oft is just refracted through my upbringing in Porthcawl, like a lot like a lot of people. And, and I think that helped when I was thinking about things like Brexit um, uh, and why people vote conservative. And because you know, especially around the Brexit vote, people were often saying, "Well, it was it's racism, it's uh, xenophobia, and things like that." And I was not going to minimise. The presence of those things but a lot of it was termed in a dislike of bureaucracy don't like people don't like the state don't like people telling the little man the little producer what could what to do sort of arbitrary rules and i think all those things i used to witness growing up around sort of um small tradesmen those those things explain a lot of the uh the the, the power if you of, of modern conservatism we will get into that important to say you don't view yourself as part of an expanded new Working class, precariat, that's the point of the book. We will get to that, it's the meat. Um, but quickly, you sort of hint, again at the top of the book, that you, you think your PhD was a mistake. It was a waste of time. Now, since then, you've returned to the academy. <laughs> so presumably, you don't think it was a waste of time. Where do you sit on that? Because obviously, you know, I did a PhD too. It's three to four years of your life. Yeah. And it's potentially lost income. Um and realistically, there's the, the earning dividend from it is, is negligible. I, I, that's my personal view, unless you're doing maybe something like economics or mathematics. So, was it a waste of time? Mm, yeah, good, good question. Actually, um, when you're in the weeds of your PhD, and obviously once you finished it, and once you're on the job market, um, and realising how competitive it is, um, I did think it was. I did think it was a waste of time. Um, there's a lot of people now who, I mean, obviously the debate about Mickey Mouse degrees and things like that. Um, it's hypocritical of me to to say that on the one hand because I, I absolutely loved university and I loved the sort of all the fruits of it being able to study um, is a good thing in itself. The thing that upset me and still upsets me about it um, because I, I don't necessarily think I I was sympathetic enough to the the plight of people who are experiencing downward social mobility in the book because it is a really awful, awful experience. You know, when you sort of, you said, you said about the two paths, you know, in school, you're sort of, you know, you're told from a very young age or oh, you're like academic, you're bookish, you've got to do this thing. You can't, you know, you don't do the DT, you're going to do this. And then without knowing it, you sort of get sent to university and then, and then obviously it turns out that everyone's got a PhD and, you know, you get two, 300 people applying for, for lecture jobs and and it's very it's very difficult to start to, especially when you see there's no light at the end of the tunnel you know you're just thinking I'm just constantly applying constantly applying for jobs and nothing's going to happen and, and but but I guess a lot of it is about your your image you have of yourself right I mean we'll get into this a bit more but um the whole point of social mobility in um in the UK is it sort of telling people that you you shouldn't stay in your small town that you are de facto you know whether it's you're better than people who the working class people who stay, or uh, certainly you're different. And so when you sort of work in these, what I thought was a dead end job, um, I did start to feel particularly particularly despondent about it all. But um, I had a you know it was in, it was interesting studying it. But the problem is is that it, is that the the economy has has devalued the thing I studied. It's de, it's destroyed the higher education system. It's destroyed. Um, there's now too many people doing P too many people doing PhDs, and I include myself in that, you know. So it's um, if you, you you do tend to feel upset by the, the sort of sunken the, the time wasted, mm. and um, I mean, you know, me and you have spoken about this. Is that you delay your life, you know, you put off, you're losing years of your life in terms of your earnings, you know. I'm you know I'm 
I could probably beat my age out, but you know, I'm, I should have had a family by now. You should have, should have had children. And there are a lot of people who, um, you just delay in these things that you want. You know, I, I did, I do want a house and children and, and, and all those things, but you ended up delay, you end up delaying it for this, um, because of your PhD under the, the sort of promise that, Hey, you're going to, you're going to get to the professional class and you never, and you never end up getting there. And I think that's unfortunately going to become a reality for a lot more people. As I mean, as I say in the book, there's the amount of graduates now in non-graduate jobs is, mm-hmm. is staggering, you know, I think 4 million. Um, and there's no movement, you know, people aren't moving into graduate jobs. People are just going to be stuck for longer and longer and longer. Mm. And the central question of this book is politically, how do those people build a broader coalition to change things in their in their economic interest? The thing you say about downward social mobility, again, I have to say the whole book and the whole hypothesis really resonates with me because we're similarish ages, similarish sort of professional choices, I suppose. I remember and 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 downward social mobility is the story of lower middle class or working class aspirants over the last 15 years. You know, I remember one guy, a good friend of mine who's done very well now, which points to the, the sort of hypothesis in this book, he was not working class, you know, he was a part of the petty bourgeoisie. I remember him graduating from the LSE with a master's distinction, had a first class degree from UCL and he was doing um, unpaid internship full time and he was working in a bar full time. And he did all that and he still couldn't find work. And I remember him being, so we lived in bunk beds near Old Street. <laughs> My girlfriend left me. because I said, yeah, move in, mate. She went loopy. She didn't go loopy. She just thought I was an idiot. And uh, that, that relationship ended. And I remember him, I bought a tuna sandwich and he was looking at it longingly because he, he literally couldn't afford to buy a sandwich. He was, you know, you're living off your tips the, the last day or two of the week. He probably had like, I don't know what he had, probably a few pizza bread, some hummus and a couple of eggs. And he thought that would be my dinner tonight. Now, that was only his experience for like a couple of years, say, but that's incredibly radicalizing for, for somebody. And I think his dad was an architect, you know, he came from a pretty solid middle-class family. He didn't have enough to really help him out. And that is the experience of so many people, that downward social mobility. And I say he's done well. I mean, I wonder how he feels about me saying all this stuff. He, he lives in like a two-bed flat. Yeah. And he's, they've got two incomes and they're still nowhere near where their parents would have been at the same age and whatnot. And that is the story, like you say, of, I mean, there's the 4 million people who've not got those jobs they expected. There's millions more who still probably feel like their expectations haven't been met. And you think that'll grow over the next sort of five, 10, 15 years? Or have we hit an inflection point where actually younger people realize what's going on and realize that this status quo probably isn't going to meet a certain set of expectations. One of the problems is that people from sort of uh, small towns, uh, working class backgrounds, or what I class as the new petty bourgeoisie, you know, people who are aspirant, upwardly mobile, being told in school, go and do this, go and do this, go and do this, um, is that you're being told to get into fields which are dominated by what I would call the professional managerial class. People who do have like a lot of money, a lot of sort of privileges to use a word you know people um people who are who are very comfortable people who do have um connections in x or y industry like you know, say law or academia and things like that and people are being told to go into these fields and even if you come from a supportive family a family who 
aren't poor, which is a lot of people, certainly me, are extremely supportive family, you realize when you're entering these fields that you have nowhere near the same amount of sort of cultural capital and cachet and advantages that, that everyone else has. You have no connections. You can't go and live in London um, for free or, or whatever. Um, so in a way, people are being set up to fail like it's set up to fail and there's a tension whereby on the one hand I love education and I think education in itself is a, is a fantastic thing it's amazing to learn to be able to read books to have some time to read um and study a topic you love but then the reality is that you know people are you know, funneled into this system the, the sort of I don't know what to call it the higher education industrial complex or whatever the, the fact is most six forms now um, the head teachers want to get kids into university. It's not really like how they're going to do or the fact that the graduate premium is massively stalling, which, which it is, you know, uh, with the exceptions of STEM subjects and economics. Um, but I think that it's, that's a really important point. So the numbers on this are, I think for a UK male, the graduate dividend over a career is like 150 grand, yeah. which is, you know, it's quite a lot. But in the US, it's like 450 grand. In France and Germany, it's 250 grand. So there's actually also, like you say, it's stalling, but there's also something quite unique about how it's stalling in the UK. Yeah, massively. And there's also um, you know, the internal, uh, the, the differences within the types of different universities. You know, it's not just the graduate premium or being a graduate. It's, you know, I went to a post-1992 university yeah. or whether you went to a Russell group or whether you did humanities or whether you did uh, you know, English literature and things like that. And increasingly, it's like, you know, if if you have gone to a not particularly prestigious university and if you have done a degree which isn't STEM or uh, economics or things like that, you're probably not going to be that much better off. And in fact, it, I mean, some, I can't remember the exact stats now, but when I was going through the statistics from the education chapter in the book is that universities increasingly just reproducing the class structure. So it's not actually giving people social mobility. You'll come out of university in the same sort of class and situation as you were, um, which is fine if, if you're going into education for the sake of education, but if you're going to university to get mm. to, as I wanted, to have a nice, comfortable life as an, an academic, and I genuinely did. I mean, right up to the end of my PhD, I remember thinking, like, you know, I'll finish this soon, and then I'll have a nice tenured lectureship, and I'll wear hush puppies, and, and I'll have a really nice life. Um, and even as that was sort of falling around, you know, uh, around me I, I still sort of kept thinking of oh, this uh, it'll be different it'll be different for me and I think a lot of people think that you know I'll be the one who breaks breaks through um but this has always been the case for things like you know the media academia and being an actor things like that but it's now increasingly like that for all that sort of horrible all-consuming feeling that you said about your friend of mm. uh, of, of downward social mobility um of expectations clashing with reality of living in terrible rented accommodation um is becoming more and more uh, of an. It's just being norm. It's just being normalised, and it's going to last longer and longer. And it's definitely a radicalising. It's a hundred percent a radicalising um, thing. But as the other important thing in the point in the book is that I still think that there's a bit of a difference between the experience of downward social mobility or blocked social mobility and sort of what I call you know just class consciousness. Or my experience as a downwardly mobile graduate um, was definitely radicalising for me, as it is for a lot of people. But it's also it's not exactly the same thing as as being working class. Yeah. And you, you make a great point in the book, and again, it resonated with me so much, of, you know, even if you're downwardly mobile and you're trying to get rent on a house, if your parents are homeowners, they can be guarantors. And I thought, Christ, that's so true. My parents rented all the way through until I think their mid-50s. My dad's now a homeowner. You know, exactly that happened for me. And it's a huge difference. Um 
uh, you say this thing about the axes. I mean, this is so true, isn't it? So for instance, you know, people would try and break into Hollywood or become a professional footballer and they would say, that's my big break. But now that mindset has just applied to the entire economy. If you want a job in public relations, oh, my big break, 30,000 pounds a year, is as if you're like waiting tables and trying to get a, a script and a major sort of motion picture. Um, really, really interesting. Sticking with HE for a second, higher education. What's the role of higher education ideologically under neoliberalism? I mean, there's, there's a number of ways in which I think HE works ideologically. The first one is that, I mean, as I say in the book, social mobility, we talk about neoliberalism and sort of how capitalism catches on and things like this. Social mobility is, uh, as an ideology uh, is one of the ways in which um, the system holds itself together. It's the thing that keeps people individualistic. It's the thing that stops people having sort of solidarity with other people. It's the thing that stops people identifying with other people um, because you want to better yourself and you want to get out of your class situation, X, Y, and Z. So by its nature, you know, the social uh, higher education for the low middle classes plays that role. It inculcates social, the ideology of social mobility and tells people that social mobility is, is a good. Um, and then obviously beyond that then, it inculcates other uh, forms of ideology, um, but I think the main I think the main one is is, is social mobility um, and this idea that we are different from people who don't go to um, university. But there's there's also I mean, without wanting to get into like culture war stuff, there is obviously you could argue that the HE sector does have particular a particular role in sort of inculcating particular ways of of thinking about the world and forms of language, uh, ways of being, um, the cultivation of like a new habitus or whatever, Bourdieu, totally. or Bourdieu says, you know, a way of holding yourself, a way of, um, you learn new forms of cultural capital, which are going to help you on the job market and in ways of being, um, which are implicitly not what people who don't go to university, you know, they and don't. They, they alienate you from people who otherwise might share very similar political interests. Yeah, of course. And then, I mean, I always think when, um, you see people on like left Twitter. I don't like to use left Twitter as like a gauge of, of anything, but you know, over, over Christmas, people make the, the pilgrimage back to their small towns. And people always say like, oh, I'm meeting my friends from school um, or I'm talking to my family. And there's always this like oil and water culture clash between like, you know, progressive sort of young lefties and then implicitly parochial reactionary people from small towns. Um, obviously that is not, you know, graduates are a minority obviously not everyone has that sort of clash because not everyone has to leave their small town a lot of people a lot of people stay um but the sad thing is when and i say this in the book is that gradually and i'm sure a lot of people will test this gradually you end up falling out of touch with people who didn't go to who didn't go to university um and you sort of get split off from them culturally politically ideologically socially you learn new ways of, of behaving it's like um when your uni friends meet your friends from home or, you know, and vice versa, and you're always trying to straddle this, the, the two, the two worlds in terms of people's expectations and ideology. And, and, and when people end up, you know, one of the biggest forms of migration in the UK is the movement of young people from small towns to university towns or cities. And a lot of the time that's, that's a permanent move. You know, they move because they want to be around sort of like-minded people. And it, it's led to this situation well, I don't say like metropolitan sort of uh, elite or whatever, but it's, it's it's led to the situation where like-minded people with similar politics, similar ideology, similar uh, outlook on, light, on life, which started in university, all end up 
Well, that's inarguable, I don't... Staying in the city. The way you sort of raise your eyes there, you have to check yourself. You know, am I going to be cancelled for what I just said? I don't think that's a particularly contentious point. You know, most, most people would acknowledge the electoral geography of particularly younger voters, let's say voters under 45, disadvantages Labour or progressive parties because they, they tend to converge in, in similar areas. They tend to marry people like them. You know, again, I'm a classic example. Um, my wife comes from a very similar background to me. She's from Portsmouth. That was a bus driver. Mum was a seamstress. She went to the LSE. We got married because hmm. I was at UCL. She's at LSE. So, like, people marry like-minded people. Of course. So, one of the thing you one of the things you take aim at is social mobility. I think people should probably have understood that by now. Here's a quote from the book on social mobility. Uh, this would keep them social mobility on side and ensure that they identified with the hierarchy rather than throwing their lot in with the lower classes and fermenting revolution. Very. Radical sounding. After all, people are not inclined to smash a system they think they can get to the top of, and the educational divides ensure that they had a class beneath them to look down on and define themselves against. From the very beginning, social mobility via education was the ideological strategy designed to shore up the status quo. Now, that's the ideology, really, of New Labour. Mm, of course. But what you're saying is, is that that is the problem. Yes, of course. That is the problem. They're not. This is not a, uh, an ideology of allies or people on our side. This is the problem. Yeah, the social, social mobility, I think, is at the core of so many, so many problems in our society. You know, the, the core of social mobility is don't raise, you know, rise with your class. It's rise out of your class. Implicit in social mobility is this idea that there are a group of people or areas that you have to leave. Uh, it's built into the education system from, it always has been. So I do like a, a brief history of the education system in the UK um, and, you know, right into the Victorian uh, era, you know, the, uh, when it, you know, higher education and secondary education start to become uh, normalised, it's the, it's not for the bourgeoisie, you know, it's not for the bourgeoisie because they don't need to get anywhere because they're already uh, where they where yeah. they need to be, and and you know the bourgeoisie are defined by ease. You know they don't they don't have the panic of social climbing or the worry of sort of falling back down into whatever class. But it's the middle classes who've always put a, a massive amount of um, a huge value on education because it's education that is going to get you up that social ladder. And yeah, I do think that social mobility does stop people identifying with um, the people below them. It stops people. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot in the in the book about education. I think um, in terms of the splitting people off from one another, but but I, I think a lot of people sort of just, particularly on the left and myself included, social mobility as a good is sort of is taken for granted. But I think it's really pernicious because it's that. Um, it, well, one I said this already, but it stops you identifying with with other people uh, who are in. Uh, sort of a lower position or stops you identifying with the word class. But two, it keeps you individualistic. It's a hyper-individualistic way of viewing the world. It's about like the individual climbing the ladder. Um, and yeah, I think that's a Hobsbawm, uh, possibly Hobsbawm quote you read. That it's, Eric Hobsbawm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marxist historian, this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he says it's about, you know, the, the, the middle classes would, would never smash a system that they thought they could, they could get to the top of. You know, it's the... Uh, and even even now, you know, even now, I know social mobility is a lie. I know social mobility uh, isn't working, but I'm still not going to stop thinking. Oh, you know, one day I'll get to the top. One day I'll get to the top because because what's the alternative? You like, you know, people and the alternative, unfortunately, is people embracing downward social mobility and realizing that uh, these dreams I had of of myself of getting to this particular point aren't going to happen. And that is a that's a that's a brutal and it's a jarring it's a jarring thing to think. 
Mm, so quickly recapping, this idea of social mobility is really a, a veneer which legitimizes and reproduces a society of ever exacerbating inequality. You also say, however, which I think slightly conflicts with this, that the era of progressive neoliberalism is collapsing. Now, clearly the era of progressive neoliberalism goes hand in hand with that, like you say, hegemonic idea of social mobility. Everybody broadly thinks it's a good thing. So if the era of progressive neoliberalism is collapsing, does that mean people are sort of less inclined to believe in social mobility or they think it's a lie or it's a crock? So I suppose let's, I'll, I'll reformulate the question. What does this mean that the era of progressive neoliberalism is collapsing? I think, yeah, good question. I should have thought about that. Um, but but more, and more, more and more people are seeing through that the system that doesn't work. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the difference between maybe our generation and even people five years older than us, you know, the people who are Gen X, uh, columnists who are obsessed with Blair and New Labour. One of the reasons that New Labour was so popular amongst our generation was for a very brief moment of time, there was real social mobility in the UK. Mm. You know, very you know, people had, in the, let's say the 90s, people had free university for a little bit and then the door sort of slammed shut. Uh, house the the mini bubble of Blairism because it, you know, it was an economic, mini economic bubble. Um, and obviously you have like Britpop and things like that. People loved it. But um, the main reason people lo love New Labour is because they actually achieved so uh, it, they achieved genuine social mobility, a bit, a bit like the old grammar school system, you know, because the grammar school system actually saw a lot of people, you know, genuinely uh, leave one class and move up to another one. That is obviously not happening anymore. Just the, the stats on the graduate, uh, the, the death of the graduate premium, the amount of people who are stuck in sort of non-graduate jobs and the economy isn't getting, <laughs> getting any better. And this is, as, I've argue, as I argue in the book, one of the reasons that progressive movements around the world are the main social base of these movements are um, downwardly mobile, very overeducated, you know, arguably overeducated, underemployed um, graduates is because they're realizing that this isn't, um, it's just a lie. It's not, the, the, econ the economy is totally broken as you've, you guys have, have pointed out on Navarra so many times. It, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a massive lie, but the, the, the challenge I think for, for us is to sort of, as a left, is to shake off this idea of social mobility because the problem is, is that do we want to, sh do we want to massively change society? Do we want a revolution? Do we want to overhaul society? Or do we want to actually just make society meritocratic so we can take up our rightful positions in, yeah. in society? And one of the criticisms I have of, you know, I campaigned for Corbyn, I, you know, really like Jeremy Corbyn. Um, in fact, I gave him the last copy of my book, actually, so I should have bought, I should have bought my, should have bought my own, but uh, I gave it to him. But um, I do believe that, that the motivating factor for a lot of people being involved in progressive uh, movements is not to overthrow the class system. It's not to do away with hierarchy. It's actually to just ensure that we can take up our rightful position. And if you look at some of the strikes that are going on at the moment, they're sort of classic white-collar union strikes and, and that they're a response. It's not a collective response of the working class, in my opinion. It's the response of uh, middle class or, you know, aspirational people who want to restore the status they've lost. And that is very, something very different from like a working class That's union, so for example. Sorry to interrupt a brilliant conversation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, but this is really important. In order to 
solve some of the fundamental problems of society. In order to transform society for the better, we need to talk to each other. We need conversations because we can't understand each other or our problems without conversations. Conversations just like this. If you agree and want to be a part of what we do here at Navarra Media, support our work. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Help us build a people-powered media for a rational, sensible, informed conversation about how we move together as a country. I'm not, I'm not saying Jeremy Corbyn. What did Corbynism get wrong about class? It almost goes back to this idea that if you think about the 30s or the, the 50s or whatever, you know, this idea of the sepia-tinged sepia photos of uh, the working class. Um, and it's interesting to go back to the these historic writings on trade union and the labour movement, because obviously back in the day, the labour movement was led by the, the manual working class. And the struggle was always, how do we graft the, the white collar sort of middle classes who are in a minority, by the way, how do we graft them onto our mass sort of working class movement? Um, the, the difference now in the British class structure is that the, the middle classes, r rather than falling away, as like Marx sort of suggested, are now enormous. You know, the class, I mean, I, I had like a, a graphic, I don't know if I put it in the book, but it's like the, the, the class structure as it was in the 30s was, I think it was something like 5% of the population were managers and professionals. Um, and then the overwhelming majority of people were sort of in blue collar proletarian manual jobs. And today it's totally the inverse, you know, managers and professionals are the single largest um, employment category. If you look at the NC, uh, NCS, um, class category um, and the, the working, the traditional working class is sort of, is not as big as it was. Um, so managers, I think you put the number in there, something like 14% of the labor market, yeah, something so, like this. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just really big. It's an enormous, it's an enormous, uh, an enormous growth in, in managerial and professional uh, work. Yeah. It's in a way that would have been seen as, as, cra as crazy, you know, back in the day. But so in terms of the class character of Corbynism, I, I never wanted to like offend, people or um we love that here on Navarro Media. <laughs> but the, be but, as offensive as you like. But um it goes back to what I said earlier. I mean if you look at you know Jeffrey Evans and some of these political scientists, um because you know, I'm not I'm not particularly like a fan of political science, but some of the statistics are really, really interesting in you know, and, and like it or not, low earners, you know, under in two thousand seventeen and two thousand nineteen um were increasingly likely to leave Labour and start voting for the Conservatives. But they were more likely to vote for Labour. No, low earners in 2019. Uh, two, no, no, 2017. I think lower earners, because there was this whole debate, wasn't there? You know, C2DE, so sociological oh, yeah. sort of working class voters went, were going Tory. But then you looked at income stratification, which obviously maps again onto age. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, they were more likely to vote Conservative regardless yeah, well, than historically. Yeah, so class, well, yeah, the, the, the theory is that class realignment, so class realignment was obviously, you know, back in the day, low earners, the working class would vote for Labour, yeah. the middle class would vote for Conservatives. That is increasingly no longer the case. You have Thomas Piketty, the stuff on, you know, the Brahmin left, this idea that, that the, the progressive forces are now being favoured by very well-educated people who tend to... And this and this is the one that you pull the data apart, not that I'm an expert on doing this, is that within that low-earning cohort, uh, a lot of them are sort of graduates. Um, so that's some of the... But anyway, the point is that class realignment is sort of turned into permanent class dealignment. You know, in particular, two thousand nineteen, a preponderance of low earners are now voting conservative, which is which is really really bad. Um, and for Cor all Corbyn's strengths, 
what I argued in the book is that I think the majority of or his key social base, you know, wasn't the working class. You know, it was it was downwardly mobile graduates. And I and I as I've argued in the book and I was already intimated, I think that the desires of a lot of the people who were involved weren't actually it wasn't re- was it really about a radical transformation of society or was it about creating a more meritocratic society where actually we can take up our place in the class structure, our rightful place in the class structure, you know, so I can have my lecturer position, you know, so I can finally get a house. Um, and I'm not saying these aren't absolutely laudable aims, which would have um, massively transformed society, but um, I don't think they were particularly radical in terms of like the, uh, of, of um, it's not, revol- they're not revolutionary aims. It's about turning to a sort of- well, a, I, mean, I don't think anybody would say Corbynism I don't think any because it, th- th- that might sound then like you're saying, oh, you think Corbynism's revolutionary? It wasn't. Yeah, I don't think many people think it no, was no. revolutionary, but I think you're right to say that the characteristics of Corbynism are far more socially liberal than economically socialist. Yeah, and not and not Corbyn himself. I think no, actually, and, no, and, 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 and obviously, I use the example of the EU. Um, and again, yeah. and again, you know, I appreciate you guys are probably sick of talking about the EU and, and Brexit and things like that. But the pivot towards a second referendum was, as a lot of us, including yourself, argue at the time was disastrous, um, but a lot of people in Corbynism um, not just went for it, and I, I don't really want to get sucked into a debate by the EU, but what I thought was interesting then was a lot of the people who were involved in it, um, that, that pivot towards the second referendum, in the same way as when I used to work in a university and people in Portugal were voting leave and people were sort of horrified at, at, at that, they didn't really seem to understand why people didn't like the EU. So it seemed to me like they were you know, they had more in common, possibly culturally uh, and ideologically with the, the professional managerial classes. Um, what's interesting in terms of the, the, the sort of overall picture of the class structure is um, there's an article by Guy Standin, uh, who wrote The Precariat, and obviously everything he writes is really interesting. There's an article in 2020, uh, just after the, you know, the, the labour loss. And he basically says that, you know, he calls for progressive forces to essentially write off the old working class and the sort of and the petty bourgeoisie basically says that they're socially conservative. They're the new basis of the far right, which they are. You know, like the, the as we'll get on to, the self-employed are yeah. massively overrepresented in in UKIP, Brexit, and, and far right movements across um, across the world. But he basically says, listen, we don't need this group of people. You know, we need to focus on building a class coalition between the precariat, downly downly mobile graduates, and sort of progressive professionals. And I thought it was really interesting because he basically implies this hasn't happened. But when I looked at the Corbyn movement and when I look at Podemos, when I look at Syriza, um, when we look at the Sanders campaign, that is actually exactly what's happened. You know, these movements were sort of coalitions without the working class involved. I mean, that was obviously a bit of an exaggeration because Corbyn retained uh, a quite strong minority of trade unionists and, and working class people that are all, always going to sort of vote Labour. But in terms of the, the new constituency, I did actually think that if you look at Corbyn, Corbynism objectively as a coalition, that's really what it was. It was about professionals. It's about uh, the downly mobile graduates. Um, and the problem is across the world, we know now that coalition doesn't work. But Deimos has failed. You know, uh, Sarita has sort of imploded. Um, Corbynism has, has, has failed. Uh, but not just that, like the SNP... Um, is sort of, well, I don't know if they're imploding yet. The Welsh independence movement is sort of imploding. All these movements which don't actually take the the old working class and the petty bourgeoisie with them, 
they don't hold. Um, so I think that we've we've almost seen what we've almost seen what happens when you don't get those people involved. Um, the challenge, as we'll talk about, is how do we build how do we build a coalition when people think that they're obviously insurmountable sort of cultural and social uh, uh, rifts between between certain groups. Yeah, let's let's. I'll, I'll bring in another anecdote, which, of course, we know. You know, you're a sociologist. We know that anecdotes aren't particularly scientific, but you know, they're fun. They are fun. I remember in <laughs> May 2019, European elections. Believe it or not, I was canvassing for Labour, um, even though I thought the position on you know he was just completely insane. And park that. I'm sure many people watching this would disagree. But in 2016, 400 constituencies vote Leave. The minute you say they're all wrong, you cannot win an election. End of story. Anyway. I was canvassing for Labour and I remember just walking along the street and there was a guy in a wheelchair, like kind of rocker, long hair, interesting guy, older, maybe 60, 65. And um, oh, I said, oh, there's going to be elections soon because obviously you had the May elections for the locals and the Europeans and then you had a general election. And he's like, what's that for? I'm saying it's the European election. But we've left. And it, he was looking at me like I was from another planet. And I was like, but there these European elections and then, you know, we might want to reform. I could have been speaking a completely different language. He said, but we voted to leave. We voted to leave. What are you talking about? And then, <laughs> I, and then I'd come to London and there were people, or I go on Twitter, there's a majority for people. And I'm thinking, and by the way, that's never happened since. This, this, this divide in society being so obvious between, like I said, downwardly mobile, um, sort of graduate class, professional managerial class, um, uh, professionals and then like the rest of the country it was so stark and, and that's and that's what that was one of the catalysts for writing the book you know it, it was you know obviously i'm from a low middle class background um and then when brexit happened i was in the in the university as a mm. as a researcher and i, I did i got inc increasingly uncomfortable about the way people who voted leave were being spoken about you know some of the language was virgin on like eugenics, you know, like these people shouldn't be allowed to vote. They shouldn't be allowed to have kids, you know, all this stuff. Really? Would, from academics? Well, people who were sort of progressive, you know, mm. see, people who consider themselves to be progressive. There was a lot of, um, a lot of the sort of class hatred that I thought would always been like latent really start to seep out. But obviously didn't, it was always, the language was about education. People are uneducated. It's not, they're not there. You, you can't really, people wouldn't say scum or whatever, but it was, it was, fairly obvious what people were thinking and I, I just they haven't got, got a BA yeah but I but I started to get, get really really uncomfortable the way people were speaking about um people who voted uh, leave and then um and as you said I got well ever since I've started to become aware and we all know it this increase in I don't know what you'd call it an, like an epistemic or gulf in understanding and life experiences between between, between uh the Brahmin left or Piketty says that the sort of progressive forces generally clusters in cities and sort of everyone else and and that was the, the second referendum uh again wh whatever you think of it i thought was interesting because of the gulf and understanding when i was saying you shouldn't overrule what people think and it was like well i don't i don't care what you think because they've they voted the wrong way yeah um and that was when i started to think like this is an enormous problem. This is an enormous realignment. Um, I'm still very troubled by some of the language that's used. I think by progressive people, I think it's like misanthropic. I think there's a view of the country as being sort of irrede irredeemably racist and reactionary, or people are like fascistic. I really, I really, don't, I really don't believe that. Like, I love, I love people. I love Porthcawl. I love almost everyone you meet 
is a really nice person in my yeah. in my opinion. Like, and, and and I wouldn't be a socialist. I don't know how you could be a socialist if you thought people were were sort of bad, nasty, fascistic people. I really don't think that is the case. Um, but anyway, that's 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 possibly a a digression. But it, the, the, the the gulf is the gulf is absolutely enormous. And sticking with the Corbynism things, we're saying what did Corbynism not Corbyn get wrong about class? Mm. For me personally, that whole thing around the second referendum really made me reconsider the idea of membership democracy, right? It really, because I've always said, and I, I still believe in open selections and primaries, of course, um, and I still believe in, you know, member-led democracy, sort of membership-led rather parties, democratic parties. I certainly don't believe in the authoritarian top-down politics of someone like Keir Starmer. But you would see internal polling that says 70% of Labour members support a second referendum. And I'm like, they're wrong. Yeah, that's the one. That's they the are object. I don't care if it's 99%. They're wrong. They will lose. And like you say, like, it really did make me reconsider that because you can talk about membership democracy and half a million or a million members. But if they're only drawn from certain subsections of society, it doesn't matter because they don't reflect the country. Yeah. Ergo, they can't govern the country. Yeah, and that's exactly the issue. Is it? Well, you know, democracy, I think, is, is is important, and membership democracy. Again, you know, not really into like the Labour Party, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It was obviously only going to show one way of thinking because the membership was drawn from a particular milieu. And if I, I just, I just found it very frustrating. I still find it very frustrating um, when you're trying to talk to people about things like. Um, particularly the particularly the Brexit vote. I you know I, I never thought because um, it was 2016. We're still we're still we're still all talking about it. But it was it was a really interesting moment. And and for the professional managerial class, that was I mean that was almost their first first loss. You know their first L. And then and then they couldn't they couldn't take it. It's the first time that things haven't gone their way. You know and and obviously the response is just well we don't care. We'll just keep rerunning it until until we get the result we want. Um, but it's the mis the misanthropy that came out on this assumption of uh, that people were reactionary and people were sort of irredeemably sort of nasty. That was one of the driving things, uh, driving forces behind the book. I thought, well, I've I've got to sort of I don't want to get sucked into like standpoint epistemology and like this is my lived experience and stuff. But I was like, you know, generally people people are generally quite nice. People are people are generally kind. Um, people have very chaotic politics no point denying that but we live it we'll, we can talk about this a bit later but it's obvious people are going to have chaotic politics because we're in a, a class society you know where it's been designed to create chaotic politics um but it's not to say people can't be one round well there's two aspects that like the whole chaotic politics thing is just so true like you say that's a feature of class-based societies but then going back to that point of a, an era of progressive neoliberalism in decline or disintegration makes it far worse. You know, I, I talk about, I love this example. I love walking the dog, talking to people. There's a lovely guy I meet sometimes talk, talking to him when I walk the dog. Um, I think he's probably historically a Tory voter. And he says to me one day, you know what, but he's like, you, you write books, don't you? I say, yeah, I've written a book, yeah. Do you a book I really like? Oh, what's that? The Green Book by Gaddafi. <laughs> you know, and he's a Tory voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that complexity is so lost and I think the left... It's a great book. It's very, very, <laughs> certainly original. And I think the left, it's not, to, it's not to hit the left, because that nuance is completely um, skirted around in legacy media 
and Westminster political coverage. Because Absolutely. Political, political coverage in this country is not about the politics of the country. No. It's about the politics of 650 people in the House of Commons. And it's not complex and it's not nuanced. It's actually deeply uninteresting and quite boring and dull. That's why most people don't pay attention to it. The country is far more interesting. You, you made a point here about the, the misanthropy of, um, of the professional managerial class towards Leave voters. But it seems to go both ways. Um, and this idea almost that the working class also hates the middle class. So here's another quote from uh, page 284. See, I, I, when we do these downstreams, I do really, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a 300-page book. We read them. It's not like Channel 4. As um, Mike Wayne puts it, quotes, among the huge barriers to be overcome in repairing the unraveling of solidarities is the deep class resentment and suspicion now emanating from the working class to the middle class left, whose priorities seem more and more remote every day from working class life worlds. Then you come back in. This is not, not hyperbole. Despite this, and despite claiming to have, quote, learned the lessons of 2019, it is clear that the new petty bourgeoisie, these downwardly mobile graduates generally, still do not really get the depth of the resentment that exists towards the Labour Party or the left more generally, or the ways in which the left excludes people. So how does the left exclude people? Um, well, to go, to go back to the, the, the gulf and, and the, the, the hatred people have, um, whether or not it's for the, the PMC or the professional managerial class, it all goes back to the, uh, the PMS stuff, you know, the rule in the void, you know, this idea that, that politicians are no longer really that bothered about having any sort of constituency or, or a base or winning people over. They're just happy to just talk to, talk to each other, which is obviously... The stamp, the, the, you see, as Keir Starmer personifies it, he's not even pitching to, he's not pitching to any constituency. He's pitching to like Rupert Murdoch and possibly the security <laughs> services. I don't know, but he's, it's this idea. Maybe you said it. This idea of almost like um, when uh, when Greece was sort of defaulting or Italy was defaulting, the EU brings a technocrat in to sort of try to resolve the contradictions. That's almost what is happening with Starmer. You know, like just get someone in to manage the de decline for a bit. It the. The resentment that people have, not just for, like, I wouldn't say it's for the, the left, but for the Labour Party, certainly. I think a lot of people who sort of came into the Labour Party because of Corbyn, who were sort of uh, inspired by Jeremy Corbyn, and, and rightly so, because, you know, he, he was he was inspiring. And I, and I hope I, I'm not implying that it wasn't an important moment uh, or it, people were wrong to support Corbyn because they were right to support him. But, you know... The, the rot set in under, you know, new Labour and you know, the professionalisation of the Labour Party, the, the, turning the Labour Party from a, a party of working class people into a party of sort of professional spads um, who openly sort of despised the working class is the, the Peter Mandelson quote, you know, we can do what we want because where, was it, where are people going to go? They, they've got nowhere else, to, they've got nowhere else, no one else to vote. And obviously people did, people started voting for UKIP and Brexit and things like that, but Corbyn couldn't arrest those or or reverse those um, that that change. I mean, I, my dad's going to watch this, but you know, my my dad and a lot of uh, other older Labour voters I know, people who are still furious at Tony Blair and what he did to sort of the, uh, 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 the Labour Party. And obviously, you've you've pointed out the sort of Blair's pernicious legacy. But I think a lot of people who are involved, and if you're young and you're into politics, you sort of you don't maybe grasp the scale of the resentment. A lot, and a lot of it, I say it's about the PMC. A lot of it is about the Labour Party because the Labour Party have become the embodiment of that sort of professional class, and that is where almost the, the not the sellout, but that's where the a lot of the problems that the left faces as 
are most apparent. You know, you've got a, a former mass working class party that was taken over by sort of some of the worst people, I won't say ever, but, you know, some incredibly, incredibly uh, dislikable um, careerist politicians. Um, and people have, people just stop voting. One of the other biggest trends is that people just, people stop voting. People stop participating in the in the democratic process. And totally justifiable. It's to, it's totally rational thing to do to not vote. Why would you, why would you, vote you know because both parties are exactly the same and i still think that a lot of the people who are sort of you know if you're in, into politics you're into left-wing politics um you're almost i'm not saying you're in the blob but you're almost in the if you're into politics you still think politics can sort of represent uh can make a difference whereas a lot of other people have just said i've had a, i've had a guts full i don't i don't believe in any of this and i think that the scale of that detachment uh, and the, the scale of the anger out there hasn't really been appreciated because you know, I'm upset about being downwardly socially mobile. It sucks. You know, like not being work, having to work in a bar and uh, and having to live in a rented rented accommodation, things like that. But you know, people have been, other people have been having really difficult situations for for many many years. It's not you know, it's not just us. Many decades. Well, yeah, decades. Dec <laughs> yeah, de decades. Yeah. It's not. And, and and obviously, you said like having two years or whatever renting is enough to radicalize. And someone said on Twitter, like you know, a graduate will have to pay rent for a year and then. He becomes like a Maoist, you know, because it's a radicalizing experience. But for for a lot of people, that stuff has been going on for for lives for generations, you know. And um, but a lot of people have also had the the stuff knocked out with them to the point where politics is just it's something that happens over there, you know. It's something that happens and it doesn't affect our lives or you know. I, I don't I don't like any of them. Um, and the problem at the moment, I think we've got as as the left, as the left, is sort of seen of somewhere in that blob, you know. We're sort of a part of that part of that political class because we're sort of involved in it. You know, for me, the saddest thing about Corbynism and Corbyn, the saddest thing is that a man who spent his life um, fighting against the elite within his own party, as much as the Tories, which is people love to say, oh, we voted against the Blair government so many times, voted against the Iraq war. Yes, he's probably a, a career politician because he's been in parliament since, what, 1983, but he's been a campaigner in parliament. I don't think it's fair to say he's a career politician like a lot of other people who we'd use those words for in British English. And yet he came to personify exactly the worst things that the working class, blue collar workers, manual workers, old labor voters, he came to personify all the things they hate about professional managerial class, who he also has a critique of. And like, it goes back to things you said about Brexit. What was a Brexiteer? Like he, yeah. he, he was most, and again, there's people watching this go, I, you know, I, I like you, it doesn't matter. The point is Corbyn, of all the politicians in the Labour Party, probably had the closest political position to historic blue collar workers who vote Labour who don't do that anymore. You might think they're both wrong. Fine, I mean, I voted Remain. But it's ironic that he became, you know, to be seen as the arch Remainer, you know, isolated in, in his London bunker, surrounded by all his sort of millionaire acolytes. This is a guy who cycles to work, who, who has an allotment. You know, he's a very simple man. And it's just it's deeply depressing that he was allowed to be painted into that corner. But the problem is the Labour Party. The, the, because the Labour Party is a coalition, a class coalition between, you know, many different classes, but the the... the the cadre or whatever that control the Labour Party is a professional managerial class. And as long as people like Corbyn and people on the left make these sort of this Faustian pact with those people under the name of unity, they're going to be tarred with the same brush. And 
And one of the things I, I've started to think a bit more after I finished the book about how we build class coalitions and things like that, and, and I was thinking about the way that people not dismiss, but, but have this particular view of we can't go into, how do we get the culturally conservative, let's say, I, mean, I don't necessarily believe that's the case, but how do we get socially or culturally conservative working class people into a coalition with sort of progressive, downly mobile graduates, um, as if that's something that is insurmountable. But through the Labour Party, these sort of downly mobile graduates yeah. are already in a class coalition with the professional managerial class. I mean, you could call it a coalition or... In some ways, it's probably a war, isn't it? You know, there's the tension between the the, the, the aims of and the policy wants of the, the downly mobile graduates who tend to be on the left and then the sort of professionals who, who Starmer is the, who Starmer epitomizes. But nonetheless, from the outside, you know, they're all sort of squabbling over the same, the same party uh, and, they, and the left in particular always accommodate themselves to, to the needs and the whims of, of the professional managerial class that, that run the Labour Party. So it's, is it really that, impossible to believe that you could go into a coalition with another group of people if you've already made peace in some ways to get into coalition with you know people like Blair people like Mandelson and and things like that yeah it's so true how can we have a coalition with people and and, and I actually think it's very possible by the way I do think it's very I mean I know we're going to talk about culture and identity politics and whatnot I think you can absolutely build a coalition between the people we're talking about and more socially conservative votes who are left in the economy because they do care about personal freedoms, they do care about civil liberties, but that's the frame you have to use. Um, and I think the default thing, the default attitude for most people, most of these voters is, you live your life, be happy, as long as you're leaving me alone. And, and to characterize that as sort of bigoted, small-minded, it's, it's the opposite of small-minded, in fact. Um, on this issue of, um, of the Labour Party, and and the the kinds of coalitions that already exist, which we just take for granted, going back to the stuff around the, the second Brexit referendum, Lord Andrew Adonis was standing as a member of European Parliament for the Labour Party. This is the guy who who basically came up with academies, and you have radical socialists campaigning for this guy to be in the legislature for a body which the British electorate doesn't want anymore. Like it's so insane, and then people go. Why does the working class hate us? Yeah, and exactly. And, that, and that's what I always, you know, I say to, you know, I always talk about we need to win, you know, we need, we need, we need to win people over. And the fact that I, I, I maintain that a lot of the people who are deemed as well, deplorables, as Clinton called them, you know, are, are not deplorable and in fact can certainly be won over. But I'm always struck by this hypocrisy of like, well, those people are beyond the pale. But it's okay, as you said, it's also to end up campaigning for someone like Adonis or end up campaigning for who, someone who in the Labour Party who could be like a war criminal or something like that. Do you know what I mean? So there's, mm. well, there's all these accommodations and, and coalitions going on with people like that anyway. So, and, and in fact, a lot of the people who are deemed to be beyond the pale are a lot more progressive in their politics um, and, a, and a, are a lot more and a lot more radical in, than, than the professional managerial classes. And what I said in the book is that as long as you're hitching, you know, whether it's through the Labour Party or not, as long as you're sort of in coalition with this group of people, you are never going to get any, you know, we're never going to get like good things. We're never going to have radical, transformative, redistributive policies. And you're always going to get that legacy of paternalism. I mean, you said this uh, before, but I think it's, it might be worth um, just beefing it up a bit. I mean, the, the professional managerial classes are almost like, I'm trying to think of it, like yin and yang, you know, it's like they're, they're alongside the petty boozers, I'd say they're the, 
one of the main actors in politics at the, at the moment. But the you know the the, the Aaron Reichs uh, article on the rise of the professional managerial classes, and I know by the way a lot of people don't like the term professional managerial classes. I don't know why because I think it's a really useful term. But um, at the core of the professional managerial class, you know, is this ideology of paternalism, this ideology that, you know, we need to help the poor, which is great, you know, like helping the poor. But the problem with that ideology is that it also contains an assumption that we need to help the poor because they are deficient in some way. So they need us, the sort of professionals, to come and sort their problems out for us. And that is at the core of like Fabianism. It always was, you know, when you know, the Labour Party was coming together, the ILP and the Fabians, you know, the Fabians were like eugenicists. You know, they generally want, they, they did want to help the poor, but they also wanted to help the poor in this particularly paternalistic way. And one of the critiques of the welfare state, you know, back in the 70s or 80s by Stuart Hall and a bunch of other people was that while people in the Labour Party love the welfare state and sort of fetishise the welfare state, actually the reason that Thatcher's criticisms of the welfare state took on is because a lot of people don't actually like being told what to do, being prodded and, and pushed around and, and told what's good for you by, by sort of experts. And I think that paternalism uh, that underpins a lot of sort of modern laborism is really is really problematic. And I think when people talk about like, you know, working class conservatives or, or working class authoritarianism, I think the bigger problem is that is that paternalism. What people are reacting against is basically being being told what to do, being spoken to in a particular way, um, and squaring that circle is going to be a lot is going to be quite hard. It's a word we've used a lot already in this interview, um, but just to be clear, because again, it's the central look, the unstoppable rise of the petty bourgeoisie. Who are the petty bourgeois? <laughs> oh yeah, I should have said Could, that. Was... No, 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 no. Because <laughs> look, no, I think I think well, no, because everybody would have heard this term before. Uh, I remember once I said to my dad, he said he was working class or something, or maybe he said he was middle class, and I said, "No, oh, you're petty bourgeois." And he, he was he was going to punch me because he's Iranian. He just heard the word petty. He's like, "Why are you fucking slagging me off?" No, no, it means little, small, uh, small bourgeois because he's a taxi driver. He owns his own taxi. So I said, "You have a relationship to the means of production, which is a bit was being a little twat, twenty five year old." Graduate, you know, that's what I said to him. Um, so what is the petty bourgeoisie? And and particularly, can we talk about the two aspects of the petty bourgeoisie, which include both you and those guys who you would have um, grown up alongside in Porthcawl? Well, as you said, the petty bourgeoisie, uh, when we tend to use it on the left, is, is often seen as like an insult. If you read like Lenin and, and things like that, if you're petty bourgeois, it means you're individualist or it just means a catch-all for anything you don't like. Um, it's a pretty good way of doing it because you just you can just say that's petty bourgeois, this is petty bourgeois. But uh, a fairly niche concept traditionally in Marx is basically the, the middle classes in when Marx was writing doing the sort of industrial uh, revolution, this idea, the, the small artisan producer who owned his own workshop, you know, the small solo self-employed, I'm trying to think of an artisan uh, profession, you know, like a uh, carpenter or something like that. Um, and Marx basically said that the, the petty bourgeoisie would disappear. It would fall away with the, with the rise of oligarchic or monopoly capitalism. You know, the small producer would just... Uh, become proletarianized and sink into the ranks of the proletariat. So what I argue in the book is that this didn't actually happen. Didn't actually happen. The petty bourgeoisie, those, the small self-employed, um, always survived against the odds and are now a pretty massive. Well, a large chunk of the population, uh, deliberately grown by Margaret Thatcher, who was, by the way, the, the personification 
of the petty bourgeois. You can talk about Thatcher a bit, um, bit more later. I've sort of spent a, an unhealthy amount of time reading about Thatcher. Um, you read the, all the biographies, <laughs> Charles Moore. And- yeah, no, no, I just skimmed the Charles Moore ones. But, but you know, reading a lot about her views on class are, are really, really interesting. Um, but yeah, so the petty bourgeois is traditionally the, the, the small, the small solo self-employed. So I'm arguing that rather than falling away, as Marx predicted, it has remained resilient and it's large. And I characterise the petty bourgeoisie in the modern era as being formed of two fractions. So it's a bit like a DNA double helix. And I've said this joke before, but I don't know anything about you know DNA or, or DNA double helix or anything like that. But I just saw something that looked has two parts. So I thought so. That there's the old, which is the solo self-employed, and then there's the new petty bourgeois, uh, which is this the mass now of sort of often downwardly mobile, but not always, often downwardly mobile, overeducated white-collar graduates could be working in a call centre, could be working at the bottom end of the public sector, possibly like a teacher or a nurse. Could be an Avara Media presenter. Could, could be an Avara Media presenter, could be a, an academic, um, it, and so on and so forth. Uh, maybe a lot of people who are watching who are watching Navara and listening to Navara would uh, fall into this idea of the, the new petty bourgeois. So the new petty bourgeois is not, I mean, this isn't me being a, a coward and disavowing the concept, but it's not... My concept is a concept that was first uh, coined by Nikos Palantzas in, I think, like 1975. Uh, and it was a new way of trying to categorize this, this explosion of unproductive white-collar work. Um, and yeah, and I'm arguing that both both those both fractions of the petty bourgeoisie have, have grown enormously, and both of them play an enormous role in politics. You know, they're the... You've got the, the solo self-employed are a key social base of the far right the, across Europe. You know, the, the stalwart of the conservative vote uh, ever since Thatcher. Uh, Boris sort of brought them back into the fold. But if you look at the stats of who votes for the Brexit party, who votes for UKIP, uh, who votes for Le Pen, who votes for, uh, i trying to think, AFD and things like that, um, the self-employed are disproportionately likely to vote for far-right parties, and a lot of the book is trying to explore why that might be. And then the new petty bourgeoisie of the the downly mobile graduates tend to vote for um, the progressive parties. Um, So we we, we say the sort of the cliche is politics is polarised, but actually it's the petty bourgeoisie which is polarised. Yeah, absolutely. The new and the old. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so... It might see. I mean, I can't remember who who said it because I've had a lot of sort of detractors. But people were saying, you know, how can an old, how can a new graduate, you know, with progressive politics, be in any way similar or any way part of the same class as uh, a self-employed plumber or a carpenter or things like that? It sounds sounds ridiculous. And on the face of it, um, the class is very different, you know, because they're polarized politically. uh, There's a lot of things they, they tend to not have in common. So, for example. The small self-employed tend to be geographically fixed because they've got a business, tend to not have gone to higher education, whereas the new petty bourgeoisie tend to be geographically mobile and tend to be um, tend to, to have gone through the higher education system and so on. Um, but in some ways, and this is what Polansas would say, is that they, they share huge commonalities, even though they're polarised uh, politically. The different the, the thing that's split off the class is their different experience of social mobility. So the class, you know, there's the working class are sort of fixed, the bourgeoisie which is sort of fixed, and then there's a the petty bourgeoisie which can move up or down. And the thing that has sort of made the the old petty bourgeoisie um, tend to vote uh, for conservative parties is that a lot of those people have achieved a degree of social mobility or at least stability through things like um, 
acquiring assets like a house which has gone up in price for example and a lot of their politics are about or informed by you know not what i'm going to win but let's cling on let's cling on to this so i'm not going to fall down so um whereas the new petty bourgeoisie have have not actually had that social mobility they locked out the housing market we talked before about the graduate the death of the graduate premium and so their politics are about actually how can i reset this to get some social mobility so both fractions of the class are into social mobility are defined by their need for social mobility and defined by their precarity um and it's worth thinking about you know, what the working class is because traditionally the working class don't move up or down traditionally the working class are fixed and the petty bourgeoisie are not and it, so it's that's drive for social mobility which splits the class off from the working class and obviously with the drive for social mobility comes things like individualism, um, status anxiety, the worry of fear of falling down into the working class. And it's that fear of falling down into the working class, which is is such a huge motivator for people because people often think that um, proletarianization or getting poorer is almost inexorably, inexorably going to force people into sort of progressive mm. political uh, uh, positions that, you know, if enough people get poorer, then all of a sudden people will sort of rise up. Well, throughout history, the old petty bourgeoisie have gone to the right. You know, they were the, um, the main social basis of fascism uh, in Italy and in Germany uh, and the main social basis of Thatcherism. And and a lot of the reason they go to the right is because of that status anxiety and panic of losing a sort of meagre status over the working class. It was that that sort of drove them into a frenzy. Um, so, yeah, I think hopefully hopefully that sums it up. I don't know. But it's important to say that the, the petty bourgeoisie haven't you know, just been the, the bulwark of fascism, which is undeniable, or quite reactionary politics. Um, they've also been involved in revolutions. You know, the petty bourgeoisie play a very central role in 1848. They play a very central role in the 1830 revolution. There's that amazing picture by Eugene Delacroix, Liberty leading the people. People might think, what the hell is he talking about? I'm not an art historian. It is Liberty, a woman holding the French trickle law, and beside her are three figures. One is a young urban worker, one is a student, um, and one is like the, the the middle class. So you have like this interesting, you know, the, the classical working class, the petty bourgeoisie, and like the graduate without a future, the, the exact coalition you're talking about. Yeah. So, and that they oversee a revolution in 1838. They're also, like I say, quite, quite significantly there in 1848. And arguably in Paris, they, they play something of a role in the Paris Commune in the 1870s, but we, we can park that. They haven't always been right-wing, is the point. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a tough sell to tell people uh, this class can be won over for the for the left because they were the social base of, main social base of fascism, main social base of Nazism. But when I did the history chapter, I wanted the history chapter to be a bit of a revisionist history because I think if we if you are a Marxist, if you are on the left... We have a vision of history which is sort of quite neatly divided into, you know, there's the historic proletariat and, you know, driving driving history forward uh, in battle against the bourgeoisie. But actually, if you look at what's happened is the petty bourgeoisie, one of all has been very big, or at least a significant social force, you know, hate them, hate them all, love them, they've always been there. So it's to take take them seriously as a as a significant political actor. Um, uh, the early overnight sociali socialists um, that Marx and Engels Look to they were all artisans, you know. There was a, um, I read a bit uh, Mike Davis book after I uh, wrote that. I should have read it before, but um, you know he sort of characterises the early anarchist movement. You know the, the Narodniks and things like that, and all the people who were throwing bombs into uh, 
the theatre and things like that to, to, to kill the royals. He characterises anarchism as a, a petty bourgeois movement. You know, he, was, he said this is the artisans at the time were getting frustrated politically at, um, you know, they, you know, we thought the working class would have caught up politically and, and things like that. So the anarchists were all, almost all small self-employed men and they took it upon themselves to sort of... Um, Act again. You know, we could argue individualistically, but they, you know, they took it upon themselves to act in that way. But yeah, third world um, anti-colonial movements. You know, if you read like Im Cesar, things like that, Cabral, is that it was the local petty bourgeoisie that actually led the sort of the revolutions because they weren't. There wasn't an industrial proletariat in a lot of these uh, sort of countries. So it has often played uh, a radical role. And like you know, I never used to read Trotsky. Like an um, for, for various reasons, but I sort of got really got into Trotsky writing the book because he was obviously one of the few Marxists that sort of chronicled the rise of rise of fascism, and he sort of says very very clearly the petty bourgeoisie can a hundred percent be won over to the left. They just need a strong working class movement to uh, to win them over, and it's quite uh, it's prescient what Trotsky says. He says that the problem is he says the petty bourgeoisie. They look at the left and they see only parliamentarism. They see, they see only moderation. And he basically says they don't trust the left to overthrow the system and at attack big monopoly capital. And obviously fascism has the rhetoric, incredibly radical rhetoric. Obviously, once in power, then fascism strangles the petty bourgeoisie just like and, and it doesn't change the system. It's corporatist. But he says they're, they're attracted to fascism precisely because of the radical anti-monopoly language that the that the fascists would use. But he was he's very clear. He very clearly says that what we need to be aiming for is a coalition between the petty bourgeoisie, uh, the immiserated, destroyed small businessman, and the working class. And Lenin says it clearly as well. You know, he's spent they spent a lot of time. Um, it's obviously not it's not so much in Marx, but these socialists who are concerned with strategy and revolutionary moments say that like you've got this bulk of people, the petty bourgeoisie, they're not going away. We have to win them over. There's no there's no there's no alternative. You can either win them over and have them on your side, or you can have them uh, go over to the right and be sort of used by the state to crush the working class movement, which is what happened. And I think if you look at what what's happening at the moment across Europe, you know, so we've had a strike wave, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, the left are mobilizing, or Michelin says the working class are back. And across, you know, the, the world, there is a strike wave, and it is really encouraging. But the petty bourgeoisie are on the march as well. You know, there's the the, the, the far right, you know, they've got farmers protests across Europe, you know, literally the almost the dictionary definition of the old petty bourgeoisie, you know, the, the small farmers march, well, not marching, they're driving their tractors into the town squares across France and Netherlands and, and sort of spraying manure on things. And, and it's quite interesting because Trotsky and Lenin and, and, and Gramsci saw the petty bourgeoisie as extremely dangerous. They were scared of them as a class because they said they didn't have that sort of discipline of the working class movement because they lived individualized mm. lives. So they had the same anger, exactly the same anger uh, as the working class. And in many ways they say, and it's, often, it's definitely the case now, in many ways their lives were a lot harder than the working class because they were totally immiserated, totally isolated. And he just basically said this anger furious anger doesn't get socialized you know so the marx talks about the collective worker and this idea that the worker in the factory will inexorably inevitably begin to sort of start thinking collectively that he's got stuff in common with his fellow workers against the bosses well the, the petty bourgeoisie have that sort of core anger but it doesn't get socialized in, in, into a collective and it and that makes it extremely dangerous and politically 
you know, the forms of protest that the petty bourgeoisie tended to take part in were not like disciplined strikes or things like that. They were spontaneous street violence, smashing the place up. And you've sort of seen it happen across Europe at the moment. And we've got, we're coming to a situation very, as you said, the, the death of progressive neoliberalism, which is very, very similar to what was happening in the, in the 30s. I mean, the only difference really is that there is no working class not much of a working class movement to crush anymore. Or, or, or an organised fascist movement of <laughs> people who fought in a world war, yeah. you know, 15 yeah. years earlier, yeah. fortunately. Yeah, but um, yeah, that, that, that's not there as well. But um, there, are, there, there are obvious parallels in terms of the petty bourgeoisie are on the march. And the issue is like, well, what do you do with these people? Do you bring them over into your coalition or do you ignore them? And there's clearly massive unease about petty bourgeois demonstrations like the truckers' protests in the UK. You know, people sort of looked at this and the truckers movement in Canada and I think the left looked at them and were like these guys are, are nuts you know they're scary people and, and and what's happening across Europe is the far right is on the march in, in rural areas um, and, and it's taken off in rural areas because the left isn't really dealing with some of the um, the things that the the farmers are saying and again you see the one of, one of the problems is that the farmers will perceive the left as being part of the sort of coalition that is telling them you know, actually small farmers are going to have to bear the brunt of getting down to net zero, you know, things like that. Um, and we can talk about this a bit later if we've got time. But one of the the interesting things about what's happening in France at the moment is that, you know, we always look at France in the UK and think, why can't we be like that? Why can't we riot or why can't we uh, protest like the French do? Why can't, why can't we stand up for ourselves like the French do? For me, the interesting thing about what's happening in France is that you are seeing the basis of a sort of cross-class coalition between the yellow vests and the sort of French workers' movement. So Ollie Haynes um, has written all this stuff about sort of France uh, and the French protests. And he actually says there's a thing called the gilet jaunification of the French left. Because when the gilet jaunes came out, it was like the the, the, the personification of the petty bourgeoisie, just totally chaotic politics. So these people came out and one, they were in rural areas. Two, they were saying things like we're anti-tax were also anti, you know, anti-immigration. Some very, very reactionary opinions, but also some very potentially radical opinions. And at, at the time, I think it's 2018, they sort of emerged. The French left were like, "Who are these guys? You know, don't, scary people. Didn't know, didn't know what to do with them." But now there's sort of been an alliance, and they, and and a, not a formal alliance, but a de facto alliance between these sort of groups, um, realizing that actually, obviously, the things that are immiserating the uh, the low middle classes and the small farmers are the things that are miserating, miserating everyone. And there's been a real attempt to um, to come together. And what you're seeing as a consequence is the protests are spread in France against the the pension uh, age rise were spreading out for the first time from urban from the cities to the rural areas, and that's got to happen. I mean, me and you talked about this on Twitter, but you know when the 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 anti the anti immigration protests in Knowlesley in outside Liverpool, you know, another small town that's being targeted by the far right. And then lo and behold, there's a protest against, um, there's a protest against, uh, and I think they, they tried to set the immigration centre on fire in South Wales at the moment. They've been, uh, asylum seekers have been resettled in a hotel in Tlaethley and lo and behold, the far right are mobilising. And the left have this sort of thing, um, you know, it was like, mo you know, why doesn't someone organise people in Knowlesley? Why, why don't we organise in Knowlesley? And I was like, well, you've got to live <laughs> 
you've got to live there first. You've got to live and work there. But instead, we're all living in cities, and it's the same. It's the same. You know, the far right patriotic alternative of flyer in uh, small towns across the UK. They're flyer in Portugal. They're flyer in Llanelli. They're flyer in Lantwit Major around Cardiff. They're not. They're sort of leaving the cities, but they're really putting the work in in these sort of small towns. And and the problem is, is that now all the young people, the young progressive people, have just left on their social mobility journey. Well. It's almost an open. It's an own, it's an, an open goal for the for the right. I, you have we have to find a way of sort of of squaring that circle. You know, you mentioned Thatcher, and how she's the sort of quintessence of of petty bourgeois politics in this country. You know, the grocer's daughter. She, I mean, she's an an amazing amazing politician. You know, even Keir Starmer's like, I have a profound respect for free enterprise. Blah blah. Everybody has to say this after Thatcher. Everybody before Thatcher, it's just a weird thing to say. You know, Harold Wilson would say, I'm a, I'm, a te- I'm a technocrat. I want to help create the conditions for business and workers to thrive. But he, he wouldn't talk in those terms. But Thatcher is like the political id of the petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. Yeah, well, she is, right? Yeah, of course. And we're still living in that shadow that to be a successful politician in this country, to be a really successful populist politician, you have to embody that. And there's been nobody like her on the right with the exception of Farage and Johnson. And again, like it's in, in, in London, I, Farage is very Marmite. Lots of people hate him, but some people do also really like him. And it's exactly the people you're talking about outside of major cities, petty bourgeois, smaller business owners. Farage was saying, cut VAT, do this, do that. Bloody London, bloody, you know. You know, you know for instance, I'll give you an example. In, in, in Dorset, um, Dorchester is where you have like the local county council. And all the farmers in West Dorset, they talk about Dorchester like it's Stalin's Moscow. Like there's the Treblinka there and the, you know, the Red Square. They view Dorchester, this little Mickey Mouse Dorset town as like bureaucracy and the state. And they're just pushing us down. They're taking our money. They're taxing us. And Farage just gives vent to all of it. And, you know, we, and again, I'm not saying Farage is something, he's, he's lost like, what, seven or eight elections. I'm not suggesting he's, he's never got the critical mass in a particular constituency. But it's speaking to like 20, 25% of the country who actually do matter. Like, if you want to get a social majority, of course that matters. And only the Conservatives think about that question in those terms. And it's Thatcher who really redefined that political geography, isn't it? 100%. So, that, as you said, Thatcherism just personified the pet, which is the daughter of a green grocer. Um, when she came to power, she started all, all her maiden speeches are about being the daughter of a green grocer. And she started, um, you know, the narrative of the, the British economy being tied to analogous to a household budget. She used this idea of the, you know, the, the, this concept of thrift. That was all rooted in this idea of the small business. You know, we have to balance the books and things like that. Um, and so, so much of her ideology, because we talk about neoliberalism sometimes as if it's sort of some nebulous, uh, just some vague thing that we, we've all internalised. And, and in some ways it is. But what I've argued in the book is that Thatcherism, you know, the British variant of neoliberalism, you cannot understand uh, the society we live in and Thatcherism without understanding the petty bourgeoisie. So not only was Thatcher herself, you know, the personification of the petty bourgeoisie, all the policies she she wanted, she she wanted to restore she wanted to change the class structure. She wanted to get rid of the the, the industrial working class. And, and the thing is, she did actually hate the working class, which is sort of, she was the traditional uh, petty bourgeois 
uptight view of the working class as sort of being lazy or or scary or uh, bolshy and things like that. And she generally did violent, yeah. And she generally did despise the the industrial working class, and she wanted to bring. She also, by the way, despised the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie. And there's all these things in her in her autobiographies about how she she absolutely reveled in like firing sort of old patrician conservatives. Um, but she. She obviously revolutionised the Tory party in uh, in terms of the ideology. You know, the, the sort of patrician um, one nation Tory sort of was was torn up, and it was replaced by the values that of the petty bourgeoisie. You know, um, including you know, get rich quick, or well, not, although that's arguably uh, sort of a vulgar vulgar manifestation of it, because they you know they said that she wanted to create the the society of her dad, but she ended up creating the society of her for her son, who was just like a spiv, but. Um, yeah, the she she deliberately uh, fostered. Uh, she deliberately increased the amount of people who were self-employed for one. So on, on a on a on a very uh, simple like literal basis, she actually did grow this class. She grew her own base. She obviously, um, I think it was like a million self-employed people when she took office in seventy nine. And by the time she finished, it was four. I think it's, it's all or three. The, the stats are all the stats are all in the book, but it d- deliberately tried to to build her base. Things like the right to buy, obviously a sort of a masterstroke that we're still we're still living with the, the after effects of right to buy. Um, but it was all about um, it was all about changing the class structure back to this idea of uh, you know chocolate box houses, a nation of a nation of shopkeepers, um, and it was it was a project of restoration and and. But what I, I've sort of seen in the book, as well as actually growing the petty bourgeoisie, is that, you know, and, and they are now big, is that the society we live in, we, we all now sort of, we, we, we all sort of live under the same, and we all have occupy the same sort of conditions of employment that the petty bourgeoisie used to. So even if you're not, for example, formally self-employed, we all have to take on the sort of self-employed mentality you know we're all sort of in linkedin you know if you're a junior academic for example you're thinking of yourself de facto as a self-employed person you're thinking about your own way up the sort of career structure you're not thinking of yourself in terms of uh, a collective people are people want to get on the housing ladder people work in more isolated conditions we work in a non-unionized um you know we're we're living in the society that um that she wanted to create really and obviously she wanted to she want she she wanted to rebuild the society and the image of the, the petty bourgeoisie. It's really it, you cannot understand modern society unless you understand the petty bourgeoisie. Hence, I wrote a three hundred page book about it. But it is you you say housing. I think most people would say, yeah, I get it. She built the long term. She dismantled the working class base. Yeah, of course, so, yeah. social democracy, and she built her own long term base through housing and, and right to buy. But it's also through education, the 1988 Education yep. Act, and making education a competitive endeavour. Absolutely. Um, and, and 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 transforming fundamentally what education was for yeah. and what its purpose was. And I suppose, you know, we've talked about this many times, like a transformational project on the left has to do something quite similar. I mean, Grace Blakely says, you know, Thatcher takes on um, organised labour. I would add she takes on football hooligans. She takes on forms of collectivity, yep. which are very anathema to petty bourgeois culture. She smashes them. And um, the left would clearly have to do something quite similar. So it would clearly have to enact policies like Right to Buy, like the Education Act, which would build its base, but also it would need to identify class enemies, just as she did, yep. and, 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 and and generate really a national political message in response to that. Well, she, uh, well, she if I can just jump in please. there, I'm sorry, but she, re- she really did understand class. 
I'd say a lot better than almost all uh, Labour politicians ever. You know, she under, she well, most un- Marxists these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. She, she, she understood, as you said, how to build a hegemonic project. You know, how to build a class coalition. How to hone in on a section of the population and give them things. And she did. You know, people got their council house. You can still people meet. Um, you know, died in the world Thatcherites now. A lot of it is just rooted in, yeah, I bought my own house I, you know, under Thatcher. I've now got wealth. Um, and in terms of the the enemy, her enemy was interesting because it was it was the working class. You know, the, that's when the, the narrative of the the shirkers versus, and scroungers sort of comes in. There was it the, the strivers versus the skivers and so on and so forth. So it's attacking the people below. But she really did go for the sort of the state and the bureau, bu- bureaucrats, you know, the... Um, the professional managerial class, and and that really appealed to the low middle classes, and and uh, as you said, I don't nothing has happened. Well, you could argue Blair, you know, Blair at least had a base in the professional managerial class, but well, there's a but, little bit of a realignment. But I mean, that's after 2010, that sort of disappears, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, the easy formulation is Thatcher's people are petty bourgeoisie, Blair's are the professional managerial yeah, of class. Course, yeah, that's a good shorthand. And, and and between them, you have a sort of post democratic arrangement which locks out, you know. The sort of bottom sort of 50 percent of, of yeah, society. Yeah. What do you think of Just Stop Oil? So we've talked about forms of working class solidarity, etc. We've talked about where the new left comes from. Mm. Is Just Stop Oil a reflection of, of of the composition of this new left? Those kinds of tactics, for instance. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think Matt Huber in his, his you know, book uh, Climate Change and Class War, uh, and some of the things people say. There is an intimation that the the environmental movement is sort of uh, reflective of a particular milieu, you know, the, the student politics, professional managerial class. So I've got, I'm torn with Just Stop Oil because on the one hand, I absolutely support everything they're doing and it should be a basic thing on the left to support all direct action. Um, it's horrific, like them getting like attacked and so on and so forth. So I, I, I support their aims. I support the concept of direct action. Um, on the other hand, as someone who has grown up around, you know, white van man or sort of, um, I'm trying to think of that guy's name. What's his name? You, you know, Tom Skinner. Uh, you know, to, you, you, yeah. um, then there is something about the Dino. Yeah, Dino. Yeah, on a, as someone who has grown up around Dino and is, and I, you know, I'd love to be Dino. Um, you know, I, I, it's not like I. I'm trying to see both. Trying to the whole point of everything is build a coalition. The whole point of everything is to build. Get, how do we get working people, whether they're the white van man or, or traditional working class people into a big enough coalition that we actually do something about this. And it's a problem of all activism is that it does reflect a particular habitus and a particular way of doing politics, which people obviously don't don't get if you're in that world. And if you have that particular habitus, then you don't understand how those things are sort of... Um, and when I say off-putting, I don't, I don't want to get sucked into, you know, authentocracy and, you know, Make it weird, or, or 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 say that they're all middle class people, or that because they're very brave people, and I think they're what they're doing is is really important and interesting. But Huber talks about it, and then I talked about it briefly with the, with the, with the farmers. If we're gonna if we're gonna do anything about it, we do have to build a coalition. And one of the interesting things I think about the getting to net zero and some of the things that the EU have brought in with um, emissions and things for for farmers is that the burden of all these. The, it's the small businessman or the small producer that is ten, is going to bear the brunt of a lot of these things, while big businesses are allowed to sort of get around it through things like carbon capture and all those sort of uh, loopholes. So 
I can understand why people uh, get into work, get into work, do get angry with Just Stop Oil. And I know on the one hand, people will say that that's the whole point of direct action is to be disruptive. Um, I can equally see why people are just, people are in a rush. You know, people are in a rush. People don't want to lose, the, people don't want to lose their job. People are, if people are being made late for a, for a job, that stuff is, um, you can see why people get angry. So I can't, I don't necessarily know what the answer is for, for, for all of that, but um, we do have to be, we of course have to be aware on the left of, of how other people perceive different forms of action. And I think, um, you know, it would be good to to tell Just Stop Oil, well, listen, you should only focus on hurting big businesses. Um, and then they would say, well, we do that as well. And then they do, you know, they do, mm. do, they do, do that, but it doesn't get the same... Um, same form of publicity. Just throw confetti at George Osborne. Yeah, yeah. Just the record, while we're talking about Just Stop Oil, I don't want people to think when I'm saying, you know, are their tactics right, wrong? That was brilliant. I'm not suggesting, I'm not one of these people. I mean, we did a we did a Navarro Live at the time. People go, oh, confetti that ruined his wedding. If that <laughs> ruined his wedding, then I feel very sorry for his wife and their and their marriage. Anyway, um, but it's a really important thing, which is, look, we, we climate change is one of the big issues of our time up there with inequality, uh, you know, spiraling inequality, which can have massive political fallouts. And the question is, how, how, do you, how do you convince a social majority to do something about it? So it's not to attack Just Up Oil. No, and it's not to say that we've got the answers. Yeah. But I think, and I think there is absolutely a place for direct action. I think what they do is brilliant. It keeps them permanently in the media cycle. My worry is, and this isn't on them, in the absence of a mass movement making these arguments in towns and villages which aren't major cities, I suspect it's not going to work. I think it may even backfire. That's, and it's not their, that's not their fault. No, exactly. That's our fault. That's the left's fault, yeah. collectively. But I, I do worry without that bolted on, and without the appreciation of the kinds of class we need to actually win over to these things, might, might end up being a little bit counterproductive. Yeah, and, that, and the, the worry for me with all of it, as you said, I'm not going to criticise like Just Up Oil or any of the people who've done the campaign because it's very brave and it's very extremely laudable. But there is a worry with all this that it, it does backfire. It and the, and the worry, the bigger worry for me is the fact that as a left, insofar as a left still exists, you know, as a left, are we by saying we have to, you know, got to get to net zero, we have to get rid of cars, we have got to get all this stuff, you end up being perceived as just being part of a of the state and an elite, which is telling people um, what you can and can't do. And what is happening is that for me, often it's no different from, um, you know, the, the drink, you getting rid of disposable straws in, in that it's passing the burden of these problems down to people who are not the problem. You know, it's the military industrial complex. It's like, it, it's all these things which are, it's not a bloke driving a van to work or it's not a small farmer. You know, it's, it's things that are a lot bigger than most people. And if we as a left are sort of, getting sucked into this nanny state sort of thing of like, actually you can't, you know, the protests in Oxford, about 15 minute cities and stuff, but uh, massively taxing motorists, things like that. Um, we're just going to, it's just going to deepen this perception that the left is just part of the, part of the state, part of an elite, part of professional managerial class telling you, telling everyone what to do. And, like Porthcawl doesn't have a train station. <laughs> Porthcawl doesn't have a train station. Large swathes of the UK don't have train stations. Mm -hmm. They have terrible public transport. Like public, you, you cannot survive unless you have a car. Um, and all these, we just have we just have to think about how these things are being perceived and how we are coming off and, and start to think about building a majority. And the way to build a majority is not to 
to scold people who necessarily drive cars or have to, who have to, you know, not, not everyone can cycle to work and things like that. And I do worry the same as you that often this could be count, even counterproductive. And that's the, that's the last thing we want is the people to have, there's a backlash against it. I mean, imagine if it's the January of 2024, um, inflation's, it's going down at the moment. Let's say it's still quite high. There are strikes. So you can't, you know, this is your, your sort of, you're under pressure consultant. You've just renewed your mortgage. You know, you're coming in from God knows where, Sussex or Surrey, going into London, quite affluent, but downwardly mobile. You just bought a two bed flat somewhere. Mortgage is astronomically expensive. There's the rail strike you can't get in. You're driving in. The roadway, the road is shut. The motorway is shut because of just a bile activist. Uh, it's almost like a Michael Douglas yeah, falling, it's a down, falling moment. down moment. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, and it's, and, I can understand how that creates just incredible anger. The world is against me. Absolutely. And, and the left can't be part of that world. We have to be part of the solution. Um, and again, that's not to, that's not to ostracize the, just the boil. I'd say the action on a motorway would be bad. But I think in the absence of that broader movement, sort of explaining why we need to decarbonize, I... Yeah. Can I just ask yeah, as well, course, yeah. where, where does this come from? So I'll give you another example. Now, this may be very controversial. You know, Jordan Henderson's gone to Saudi Arabia. He's gone to play Saudi, uh, in Saudi Arabia, club football. Big, great loss. He's been, look, I know some Liverpool fans, like, he should not have been anywhere near the England squad <laughs> for the last two years. But anyway, he's been awful. Um, and I was saying this in the Euro. It's, oh, he's fantastic. He's a leader. We just go. This is the most controversial thing you've said in a while. I think. Yeah, he's you know he's, he's shouting at people, and that's why Jack Grealish and Phil Foden can't make the first eleven. Okay, I mean I can shout at people. <laughs> I've got you know two left feet. Um, he's he's gone to go play in Saudi Arabia, earning huge money, and people are rightly saying Jordan Henderson. I thought you were an LGBTQ ally. Yeah. Rightly, right, rightly, I agree with that, and I want to be clear about that. <laughs> But it is strange that there's more anger for Jordan Henderson going to play club football in Saudi Arabia than the fact that this country's government sells tens of billions of pounds of weapons to the Saudi Royal Air Force to kill Yemenis. It doesn't make it... How do we do we not generally care about this stuff as a culture? And then, oh, there's a footballer who's going to play for Al-Hilal or wherever the hell he's going to go. Everybody's up in arms. Where does this culture come from? Because it seems quite new. Well, the individualising of, of problems... Um... I, I don't know, but you're, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the way we view. I mean, we could be here all day talking about how people behave on social media and things like that, but it's almost like there's a culture now of people can't distinguish between individuals, like small movements and like brands and, and things like that. And I think this sort of American liberalism um, form of sort of online activism, which is basically just trying to get people to apologize or holding individuals accountable and you hold states accountable or things like that it's it's just seeped into seeped into how we view the world and so someone an individual is seen as as bad as a state or rather the state is the stuff is ignored but that's that's terrible because because it we become used to sort of gesture politics or mm, and that's all we can expect actually that's the best the best we can do is an apology from jordan henderson because <laughs> we we definitely can't change UK foreign policy. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, and, and I think a lot of this stuff, the, the sort of individualization um, and the hyper sort of uh, policing of, of everyone, not just celebrities, but policing ourselves online on, on Twitter and, and, and sort of attacking each other, all that for me comes from a place of, of weakness. It's that, that is a social, is social pessimism. Nothing else can change. So for the moment, let's just retreat into a, a subculture and sort of, and scold each other. And that, and that has become what praxis is. 
but no, it's, it's nonsensical. I'm going to finish on this because you've said that and it leads them perfectly to my final quote from your book. Page 301, Dan. <laughs> I read this. To Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have to say, a lot of this, a lot of this critique, I think, oh, maybe when Dan was writing this, was he thinking about Navarra Media? <laughs> no. Leftist, le- leftist media figures. Oh, okay. No, I, I thought I was thinking about uh, very specific managers a lot of the time. No, I'm um, joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, here we go. Quote, there is a pessimism on much of the left that I cannot understand or comprehend. If I thought people were bad or selfish, I could not get out of bed in the morning, let alone be a socialist. It is a cruel irony that the more time one spends in leftist activism, the more depressed and helpless one will get. It's only when one spends time um, outside the moralizing and careerism of leftist circles. Wow. Among normal, decent, often apolitical people, that one feels optimistic about human nature again. That's a pretty extraordinary paragraph. Might have gone a bit, yeah, might have gone a bit harder. Because the whole book is very sort of calm, <laughs> measured, sociological, and then this is just really... Yeah, I lost it. Just Michael, do you th- do you Douglas, Michael that, Douglas moment. Do you think your Michael Douglas moment, do you think there is too much pessimism on the left? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, it's quite weird, actually, because I've sort of had two recent periods. You know, the first one, in academia, online all the time, obsessed with Twitter, um, almost get socialised into this sort of hysterical... It's just mass hysteria about everything. You know, everyone's terrible. Um, and then sort of burnt out, did a lot of like activism. Just And then I, I've had a, a break from academia for nearly five years where I've obviously worked with worked with the homeless, um, worked with, you know, prison well, leavers. Specifically, what were you doing? Uh, so I was a, a rough sleeper worker, so an outreach yeah. worker in Cardiff. Um, you know, not really involved in activism, but just throwing myself into work, you know, working with mainly... Uh, recent prison leavers, you know, people with very, very chaotic politics, by the way. Um, and obviously in this role, to be effective um, in any way, you can't have any sanctimony, you can't have any judgment about people, you have to be empathetic. Um, and it, I think it sort of changed, it, it's like it, it, re, it switched my brain or it's, it, it flicked a switch and it was like, well, even though you're actually seeing people at the, the absolute lowest point, you're really some really sort of some really terrible, depressing things. But you're it's so much humanity, so many people working in the field who are like you know doing great things. Um, people who aren't really into politics, people who might not necessarily have have good politics. A lot of the people I was the lads I was working with, as in the rough sleepers, had deeply chaotic politics um, because they're at the absolute lowest lowest end. You know, you have to. There's a lot of sort of racial resentment, a lot of ethnic uh, tensions at the, at that sort of lower end people are moaning about certain groups uh people moaning about ukrainians having hotels or jumping a queue and things like that so in some ways it was an extremely depressing period of my life but on the other hand it was like because you cannot be sanctimonious because you have to sort of see the good in people because you have to help people regardless of their past and more importantly you have to win people just made me re-realize that with all this stuff you just have to win you just have to win people over, and that most people are actually good. I, I really and I really, really do, hand on heart, believe that. Um, I just started to think, well, you know, we m- m- and the, this is the other thing. Most people, especially working class people, and uh, a lot of the homeless, have incredibly strong, like incredibly powerful uh, class consciousness and a, an innate understanding of, of what's going on in the world. Like, not necessarily always a, 
works out when it's a coherent, sophisticated, like perfect socialist analysis, but a basic understanding that there are you know powerful people um, that are sort of um, oppressed in the working class and that working people have more in common with each other than they do with, with the sort of the bosses. And a lot of that, a lot of the time that stuff gets sucked into sort of conspira- con- conspiracy theory or other things, but there's the, the core is, is unarguable. The problem is that there's no, there's no trade unions, you know, the left is sort of weak. So we're not grabbing people who've got that anger and saying, look, this is actually, this is the way. So I've, um, I'm going to say, is it red pill to use these days or black pill or whatever, but I'm... You're not black pill. No, no, <laughs> whatever. I'm pilled, on, I'm, pilled on, I'm pilled on winning people over and like being, actually being nice to each other and being sort of gentle and, 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 and kind, and being kind online and things like that. And then I have, so I've had this one world where people are sort of really low and everyone's helping each other out and showing extreme solidarity and comradeship to each other in a sort of apolitical setting. And then you come back into, you, you log onto Twitter and you just see everyone's fascist, you know, this person must condemn this because he liked the tweet that so-and-so and and a real pessimism about uh, about human nature, but also like a pessimism about um, building coalitions. Like, And, and I, I have to admit, I, 10 years ago, I probably would have been, I probably would have been the same, you know, I probably would have been the same. Like, I'm not going to speak to that person because they disagree with me on like Welsh independence or something like that. But now it's like the more time you spend offline, the more time you spend in... Um, I guess with, with normal people um, or apolitical people, I did. I started to feel really optimistic about the world again. Uh, uh, and I, there's one more thing. I've got an anecdote about what I, what I was, uh, why I was so angry when I was writing that. So I was a trade union rep uh, in my old uh, job. And um, you know, you're representing people who are being spoken to like dirt by management. And, and obviously, if you were representing them in a discipline or whatever, you'd be also spoken to like dirt. And I had one... Uh, and again, it's an anecdote. But one day where I had sort of been representing this lad and we'd both been, I was just rattled by how I was being spoken to by the management, you know. Um, and then I remember going to a, a political meeting, like a leftist political meeting in the evening and just being spoken to in exactly the same way, like exactly the same tone um, by my comrades. You know, this sort of patronising, um, being spoken down to, sort of scolding, you know, like, basically don't have a laugh, don't have fun, don't say this or whatever. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is... And then that's when I started to think, well, a lot of this is about the professional milieu that a lot of these people come from because they tell people what... A lot of the people who are involved in a lot of these groups do tell people what to do for a living. But it's not just their habitus from work and their jobs. It's the habitus also from their parents. This is the amazing, and again, I didn't, I never thought about this. Um, my mum was, uh, I say I'm middle class, but I, yeah, I say it, I like M&S gold tea. I, 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 I nice? lo- oh, it's fantastic. I love Waitrose, okay? I'm, but my mum was a cleaning lady, she became a social worker, and my dad's a taxi driver. Growing up, I didn't have people like telling me what to do. It was very much the fault was well, live and let live. Okay. I don't, I don't have the, the mental or emotional bandwidth to worry about what this person thinks. But then you realize that not everybody is raised in those situations. People whose parents are managers who tell people what to do for a living raise their children in a commensurate fashion. They are constantly giving out commands. And that socializes like the, the younger milieus that come into what's called quote unquote the new left. Not everyone, again, I don't want people to get yeah, angry at me, but it's there's, there's clearly they will, they will anyway. Well, they will, yeah. but it's clearly like a, a cultural disconnect 
between people socialized in one way and people socialized in another. And that's kind of congruent with what you're saying, which is people were speaking to you in a way which was like a manager. Well, the Aaron, there's, a, there's an Aaron, Barbara Aaron, and Barbara and John Aaron write this, the articles on the professional managerial classes in the 70s. She then has an interview, I can't remember who it was with, um, but she basically says, you know, she reflects on a life of organizing. And she said the biggest problem, the biggest tension was trying to bring together people who told others what to do for a living and people who took orders for a living. Mm. And it says some really interesting anecdotes that, you know, she, she uses about, you know, she's mortified. She brings together these sort of like, tries to bring together sort of uh, working class autodidacts from like the factories and things with sort of college professors. Immediately the college professor starts sort of speaking down to the sort of blue collar workers. And, and the thing is, as you said, people don't even know they're doing it um, because they're socialising in a different way because class is about, you know, your, your habitus is the product of history. Um, it's like a... Mike Savage says in the Great British Class Survey, it's, it's, a, it's accumulated history. It's these things come through generations and it, and it becomes normalised, the way of thinking, the way of speaking, the way of talking to others. And, and it does. And, and, and some people clearly don't know they're doing it. But And, and equally, um, I think a lot of the, the way we talk about class in the UK, we often swear off culture. You know, we say, well, class isn't about culture. It's not about consumption habits. Um, it's not about whether you eat avocado and things like that um, because that's what the British media use when when they talk about class mm. you know and that's what you know the concept of authenticity is all about this <clears throat> people using cultural signifiers to prove they're working class and i think it's right it was right to sort of kick off about those things and to say well you know class isn't just about consumption but when you say class is about culture or, or bourgeois says like class is about habitus it's not about that when he says class is cultural cultural in the sort of raymond williams sense of culture is ordinary in terms of the institutions uh we hang out in the spaces we go to, you know, where, you know the, the way you speak to people, the way you think, uh, your accent, the way you talk to people, even the way you stand. All these things, he says, are sort of inscribed in the body in ways that um, are so central to sort of everyday human interaction. And the problem is, I think, is this, we talk about this, like this gulf in understanding, is that if you've never really felt out of place in sort of an elite institution or if you've ever felt out in place in, let's say, the left or whatever, then it's very hard to understand why someone would feel out of place, but it's an extreme, it's a very jarring experience. And there's all, there's all these books as as a, as a whole massive, uh, body of work of people who feel out of place, you know, goodwill hunting, people who experience limited social mobility and are immediately like, oh, this is awful. And that's about, you know, when the, the habitus clashes with the field, you know, you, you feel like a fish out of water and it's very difficult to, very difficult to understand is in the great British class survey, um, you know, the book, sorry, Mike Savage, you know, they, they say about um, it's this thing of being able to negotiate with institutions, being able to deal with institutions, being able to speak uh, speak, speak to your manager or being able to talk to your manager without being, you know, sort of terrified. And I've had all these things when I entered academia. I didn't really write that much about this in the book. But, you know, when, you, when I went to academia for the first time as a it's absolutely overwhelming. You just feel absolutely terrified um, about, um, you know, speaking to your professor, um, the way you felt like I was getting spoken to, just felt like I was being sort of insulted, but in a very subtle way with a sort of a veneer of politeness, you know. Um, and obviously there are a lot of academics who've who've had the same experience. Um, but that stuff is important. That stuff is really important for understanding. That stuff is really important about building coalitions. If you don't appreciate... Uh, the different ways in which other people see the world and, um, and other ways people people act, then it's very hard to see how we can build coalitions. 
sticking with the professional managerial class and like the people who tell other people what to do for a living. And by the way, I'm, I'm terrified I will become this person because obviously I, I have opinions for a living. Um, at Navarro Media, we have a one-to-one pay ratio and whatnot, but there are certain managerial functions. I don't line manage anyone. I am line managed, but you know, I, I, I participate in certain executive functions within the organization. And I think, well, this is how I will talk to my child, you know, my daughter or son, and then they will be these people that, you know, in the left in 25 years time will be, you know, the, the Dan Evans of the, of the 2050s will be, you know, decrying Aaron Bastani's <laughs> child. So, I, I, you know, I'm not there, but for the grace of God go I, I'm not suggesting otherwise. Um, but do you think that the professional managerial class have, have changed nature in recent decades where I genuinely believe they increasingly don't be- believe or subscribe to equality under the law, fairness. It's, it's, this is mind-blowing because I always thought in this country, I don't believe in the center of British common sense, blah, blah, blah. I think most people are fair regardless of where they come from. I always thought the professional class believed in basic fairness, equality under the law, due process, I wouldn't want something done to you because I wouldn't want it being done to me. Like a quite basic calculation. And actually, I don't think they believe in that stuff anymore. And maybe they never did, but I can only talk about my own sort of timeline, my own life. Um, And it does strike me as, A, I don't think they believe in democracy anymore. No. They do not believe in democracy. Like this idea of the, the very notion of Labour as a membership party and ordinary people having scrutiny over MPs and shaping policy. They, they despise it, they loathe it, they find it vulgar. Um, but also, look at the Farage debanking story, right? 60%, by the way, I think 60% of the public, you know, think this is really bad. Um, the, we now know this is confirmed. So Farage had a bank account with Coots, for people who aren't aware, um, which is owned by NatWest. They removed it. They lied about why they removed it. They briefed the BBC something which wasn't true. They then offered him a basic bank account with NatWest. He said, well, I want a business account. They said, we can't do that. He was then, I think, denied a bank account and nine other banks, right? Now, I would have thought most people would think this is really bad because today it's him, but tomorrow it's going to be me. It could be, if you have heterodox political views, you will be debanked. Well, you would think, well, the left has quite heterodox views given like how society functions right now. So it's an irrational self-interest to really care about this stuff. But lo and behold, like loads of people, university professors, top serious people, professional people don't care. Yeah, it's good. It's good because it's happened to him and I don't like it. Yeah. But if it happened to me, that would be unacceptable. Yeah, of course. No, I, I totally agree. Um you, yeah, you look back at the history of the professionals, the managers, and this idea of this humanist progressive ideology um, of, you know, the educated man. Um, and that is somehow, I mean, this is, the, I mean, the, people criticise the Aaron Rice and the PMC, but I think what's interesting is, is how it's... Professional sort of, managerial yeah, class. The PMC. professional managerial class, how that sort of ideology has sort of evolved. And I do think that there, there has been, I don't know if it was Brexit, there has been a sort of radicalisation where people are speaking in terms which are deeply authoritarian, which is... I think maybe a break because there was this, historically it was perceived as we're more progre- you know we're more progressive we're the most sort of uh, you know the experts and and that's what that was the tension with the with the bourgeoisie was like well the bourgeoisie aren't running society efficiently that's why you need us progressive technocrats to come in and run it sort of fairly in, in the interest of everyone but I think yeah I, I totally agree there has been a radicalization um, and they are the, the stuff about due process I find terrifying just in general in terms of the way 
society or, or online is going in terms of um, people are unable to appreciate this, the fact, as you all, you've said very consistently, that this stuff will be used against the left. I'm it's, surprised it, it hasn't already, frankly. Well, it will be. Yeah. It, it, it all it all will be. And, and and we're cheering on things because we think it, we don't like the person it's happening to. It's a really, yeah, it's a recipe for disaster because obviously we're sleepwalk. Well, we're already there, really. We're already in a deeply authoritarian state. And it is interesting to see people who are, you, you were traditionally seen to be like the upholders of liberalism have just totally abandoned the, the the basic tenets of liberalism like free speech um presumption of innocence and so on and so mm. forth and and if you you know if you look at glenn greenwald you know most of his output is really just chronicling the sort of hypocrisy of the american professional managerial class so they're sort of happy when for people to be deplatformed or censored if it's people they don't agree with but obviously if it happens to them which it inevitably will then it's terrible which I don't know. Sometimes it makes me think. I, I feel like a, a proper, proper liberal about this about this stuff. But these things are really important, and these those foundational progressive liberal values about free speech um, and things like that are being forgotten and eroded by those managers. It's been cheered on by people who should know better. Like this, really came home to me with Navarra Media because YouTube removed our channel yeah. eighteen months ago, and I had these views before. I, I hope. But that really brought home to me like how much arbitrary power is concentrated in so few people's hands. And it, it made my views on this really concrete. And I have to be fair to some people on the right, they, they were saying, this is, you know, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is not acceptable. And I think we need to agree to a certain set of rules, like access to banking, um, where we have monopoly media outlets in, in big tech. Like there should be a very high threshold from no platforming. I think Tommy Robinson on Facebook, he was, um, he was, guilty of incitement with that young yeah. Muslim boy. Of course he should be taken off Facebook, but that's the kind of threshold we're talking about, mm. not somebody saying something which you might disagree with or might might be distasteful, might be from the right or the left. And symptomatic of this is the Labour Party. They're, they're, again, you know, some people who so far have disagreed with everything I said, I said Farage, yeah, no, yeah. the Labour Party is the exact same dynamic. You have Jamie Driscoll, who's an elected mayor he has a lot of power. He, he has more power over actual people than, I mean, Keir Starmer's an MP, but it's, it's ballpark similar. You know, yeah, he yeah, has yeah. a real role over lots of people's lives. And he's blocked from restanding as a mayor in, in the Northeast. It was previously North Tyne mayor. Now it's mayor for the Northeast. Will be the next role next year. Because he was on, uh, he shared a platform with Ken Loach. Right? Terrible. And, and, and this stuff is, five years ago, this was Twitter. Yeah. Five years ago, this was stuff stuff that people would say on social media. Now it is part of the core ideology of like the British Labour Party. And you think, how the hell did this happen? Liberals have given up on liberalism. The the the, the like I say, the professional managerial class has totally given up on this its claim to progressive values, which has been so core cool to it. And I think it has all come in the slipstream of Trump and Brexit. And look, the left. You can't then, make, and this is actually my criticism of Glenn Greenwald, you can't then make your politics like trigger the libs. Yeah, yeah. The PMC are all fucking idiots. I get it though. I, I, get, yeah, I get it. I, get, I, I totally get it. Yeah. Sometimes I say it, you know, sort of laughing. But then you can't just have a, because obviously left politics is about, it's about class. Yeah. So you can't just have a politics which is like, which is like in response to the culture war stuff, saying yeah, yeah, like yeah. you're fucking hypocrites and idiots, even if some of them are sometimes. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really... It's really frightening. And I think we have a, a sort of discourse right now, which, and the far right are the enemy. 
that is the problem, absolutely. You mentioned sort of similar similarities to the 30s. That is the problem. But like in the drift away from a democratic society post, and I think we are drifting away, by the way, from like democratic norms, big time. It's being cheerled by people who apparently are part of our coalition. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, but I actually think that um, this is where the a potential for a new coalition actually lies, is the libertarianism. And is it, um, I mean, my conclusion in the book is you have to sort of excise the, the professional managerial ideology. And I think to do that, you probably have to break with laborism entirely. But I don't see how you can have any form of coalition um, with the working class, with the petty bourgeoisie, um, as long as you have the sort of these, these essentially very authoritarian uh, managerial people involved, you just it's impossible. And I think actually you could form a coalition um, around things like liber- you know, the libertarian value. Well, I don't say libertarian in the sort of American sense, but around classical liberalism, your right to free speech. And I think as a litmus test, that would actually put a lot of people off. You know, those we've lost sight of some of these core basic principles, but. A lot of people actually still do believe in those things, in freedom of speech and in, against censorship, and it's totally one of the ways you can you can bring people together. It really is, and um, libertarianism is, I think, goes under the radar in the UK as a political tendency because if you think of our history, we think of laborism, we think of the welfare state. Um, libertarianism is an American thing, but you alluded to it earlier. One of the reasons that um, the low middle classes and working class people. Uh, rejected the EU and voted against the EU was because of basically libertarian principles, a, a rejection of bureaucracy, uh, a rejection of sort of uh, unelected power. Um, and those are really important. Um, those are really important things. So if there is going to be a left that survives, it has to be liberal in that sense. And it has to be libert- it has to be libertarian. It has to think about are we on the side of the bureaucracy? Are we on the side of sort of an enlarged state? Or are we on the side of of people and and a lot of people don't like don't like the sort of uh the nanny the nanny state and one of the problems we've got to work out is how cuz i'd assume like me my vision of a future is probably of a abundance uh return to a lot of state spending in the welfare state but there is possibly a tension there in that we the old welfare state which we sort of fetishize on the left actually wasn't as popular as we think, if it was as popular, it wouldn't have been able to be dismantled by Thatcher. Well, elements were popular. So the NHS, yeah, for instance, the NHS right? were popular, but the, the, public pensions hugely popular. But, My God, try and get rid of those. You but know? the but the the idea of the nanny state is something that we've uh, and sort of paternalism is something we really have to be alert to. The the, the assumption that we are on the side of the the nanny state and we're sort of telling people what to do, and people, in a way, possibly that is a contradiction to how you, you, we do want a strong welfare state without having the sort of nanny and paternalism. But I don't know, surely, surely, surely it could work. But I do really think that that thing you said about the, the the idea of classical liberalism and the idea of sort of being able to say what you want and um, those are things that could form the the basis of a cross-class coalition. I really I really do think that. And I really think that we have losing sight of that, those core principles. And you do see it on the left all the time. You see it on Twitter. <laughs> You know, when we say it's like the PMC, you see a lot of leftist people are just like, yeah, this is good because it's happened to someone I don't like. Um, it's incredibly short-sighted. I'm siding with Coots. The, the the bank literally to the monarch of this country. Yeah, it's, 
No, exactly. Wow. Yeah, exa- exactly. And so we have to we, we have to be aware of who we're who we're siding with. I think, and 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 what these the precedents that these things are setting, and and, and like fundamental liberal, these liberal principles are really important. They're really important in, in rolling back this sort of authoritarian tide that that's coming in. But I don't know. It's, let's see what happens. I think that's a great place to end on. <laughs> Dan, thanks so much. Top man, Aaron. Thanks for having me.